My name's Marvin Rosenau, and I'm an instructor at BCIT in the Fish, Wildlife, and Recreation Program. And I teach in a number of other programs as well at BCIT in the Natural Resources Group, uh, Ecological Restoration. I supervise students on uh, certain projects in, in, in the engineering group, environmental engineering. So I have sort of a broad-based um that's my that's my real job. Right. I also do other side contracts. Um, I worked um, for uh, two First Nations groups up on the Nechaco uh, as an expert witness for um, Sturgeon in a Rio Tinto court case for flows. So that was a major uh, issue that I worked on. Uh, I've worked on uh, other court cases. Um, I've worked uh, with, uh, in terms of First Nations, I've worked with um, Casey First Nations on Alouette Flows. I've done a lot of um, stewardship work, voluntary stewardship stuff. <laughs> Too much, really, uh, spending a lot of my time getting uh, no pay for it. But that's okay. That's sort of what I, sort of my passion, sort of my interest. So I guess you could call it my hobby. But my main job right now is um, BCIT in the Fish, Wildlife and Recreation Program. That is really interesting to hear. When did this become an interest of yours? When did supporting wildlife habitats, making sure that fish uh, are studied and understood, when did this become something uh, that you were passionate about? Well, you know, that's really hard to say, I think, because it goes back to um, kind of uh, something um, at at a very young age, a core age, I think that... um, comes to us and and just all of a sudden expresses itself and you and and you don't know why a pianist you know concert pianist becomes a concert pianist or a football player becomes a football player or a lawyer or whatever uh i think it was because i grew up in the eastern fraser valley in the chilliwack area so i was born and raised in chilliwack in my earlier years and then moved into metro vancouver but um at a very early age four or five years of age we moved out onto a farm on Banford Road in East Chilliwack, uh, south of what's now the number one highway. They were just building it. And um, at that point, uh, it was still, you know, it had only been uh, oh, 30 or 40 years since that whole area had been drained. It was a vast sort of wetland. So uh, uh, Prairie Central, you know, the, talk of the name Prairie Central is, is road there. And so it was a wet uh, area. The horses, in fact, had snowshoes kind of arrangements. The mud was so thick. And so um, that was, there were still lots of little ponds and wetlands and streams and whatnot that had not been completely obliterated. And so things like frogs and ducks and um, crows and uh, sticklebacks in the stream, um, uh, leeches, you know, the uh, cutthroat trout, baby coho salmon, these were all part of my growing up. And so my father wasn't really an angler, he wasn't really a hunter, wasn't really an outdoors person, but you were sort of overwhelmed with the outdoor uh, sort of ambience, I guess. Right. That seems to have like some key elements to it, right? Those type of environments, those type of ecosystems are really important. And we're just starting to kind of get that now. That's correct. And I think, um, you know, it was just a a marvelous, you know, Chilliwack right now sort of distresses me to uh, come and see it because it is just, uh, you know, this urban, uh, suburban, oppressive, you know, all the little groves of trees and, um, uh, culverted ditches that uh, no longer are extant 
uh, changes to the landscape. Um, you know, it's a very um, kind of a soft, easy, growing up atmosphere. And, you know, we walked to school. There were no sort of um, strange people around, no predators, no uh, bad people, it seemed, as a child. And that was a very naive way of looking at it. But it was also a very conservative background, very conservative upbringing, as most people in the Eastern Fraser Valley know. So it wasn't until we moved. My dad became a teacher. He worked at the ubiquitous Fraservale um, Frosted Foods, which every kid in the valley in those days worked at as a summer job. As a mechanic, became a teacher, and we moved to uh, Coquitlam Mary, where he taught in Burnaby North. Right. Interesting. How do you feel about the changes that are taking place? I just maybe let's go back a little bit. The Vetter River didn't always exist. It used to flow as the Chilliwack River, and I'm just—is that was that a, a net positive? It was a huge change, and it it seems fascinating to sort of look back on. Well, I actually wrote a um, a report for the Pacific Fisheries Resource Conservation Council on agriculture and impacts to fish and fisheries in um, in the Eastern Fraser Valley. Uh, that was during a little uh, politically uh, implemented timeout, as the Assistant Deputy Minister said, uh, because I was a bad boy. I criticized some projects that the Premier was tied to. And in any event, I, I reviewed a lot of the stuff. Where we are sitting right now, where we're having the interview, the Chilliwack River would have flowed through this room, yeah. okay? And so in the uh, latter part of the 1800s, uh, farmers were starting to settle eastern Fraser Valley, so the better crossing Sardis area versus the Yarrow, Yarrow area, and the farmers were kind of battling back and forth. Uh, they were one group would push it to the south, and then the next group would push it to the north. So they were trying to develop these fields. And, and so what ended up happening is is these myriad of channels, uh, Luckacuck and um, uh, Achlet Slough, Chilliwack. So these are tiny remnants of what have been a, this magical, just extraordinary fish ecosystem that uh, called the Chilliwack River that flowed northward. Um just uh, west of the Squaw and Squay Reserves at the end of Wellington and was pushed into uh, Sumas Lake and then the, this, the whole story. So so Judge Howway sided on the folks in the Sardis area to keep the river uh, flowing more south into Vetter Creek, which is now the Vetter River. How do you feel about that? Do you feel like that was a step in the right direction? Do you th- feel like we lost something due to that? Oh, we lost a phenomenal amount. Uh, 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 people who drive back and forth through the Sumas Flats area, which Mother Nature tried to take uh, take it back in November of 2021 with the atmospheric river and flooded that area. But uh, that would have been a world heritage site. You know, Sumas Lake... Um, would have been just a, an extraordinary, well, you know, for the First Nations, uh, what, what I know as the Sumas uh, First Nations, uh, it would have been like their breadbasket, their fridge, you know. we were, Some of the stuff that I read, the uh, night flights, the waterfowl were so thick, it would blacken out the sun. Uh, the mosquitoes were so thick that the First Nations communities built their their um, villages on stilts, you know, and this doesn't come from me um, having that come through First Nations communication, just 
academic reports that I've read. So I, I sit there as a biologist. And, wow. You know, Sumas Lake must have been something phenomenal. The network of streams flowing through this area that um, made a crossing uh, Sardis area and through Chilliwack would have been just phenomenal. Just fish numbers, you know. I'm an angler, so I go out and try and catch a few fish. Most of them are hatchery fish, Chilliwack hatchery, and it would have been so diminished compared to the extraordinary ecosystem. So that kind of makes me sad. You know, I, I, I'm i in this business. I recognize that uh, we're in a planetary collapse. You know, we are really in a... People don't really understand how quickly the planet is collapsing with 8 billion people, almost 8 billion people now on the planet. Uh, and... You know, things like COVID are just, and, um, you know, wars in Ukraine and stuff like that. These are just little signs of um, the uh, landscape starting to blister and sort of fall apart. But, you know, as a biologist, as an angler, as an outdoors person, camping, hunting, hiking, natural resource instructor, it is kind of really sad. Some of my friends are skeptical of the idea of uh, global warming or climate change, and some of them it's very hard to change their perspective. But one thing that you can really see, like the ozone layer years ago, where you can actually see it and understand it, is the collapse of different species, is the loss of biodiversity, as it's often called. Um, within our area, is that something you see, is that we're losing biodiversity or the numbers of fish and animals and wildlife that used to be here? it's starting to diminish? Well, I think the problem in the past is that the change was relatively slow. So from generation to generation, the changes were imperceptible, more or less. So if you lived in a village in, in uh, feudal England or you lived uh, in a village uh, out on the banks of the Sumas Lake or if you lived in some uh, area in the hills in some mountain range in China, generation after generation after generation, it changed so slowly. And I can see in my own lifetime such rapid changes. It's like, I, you know, uh, I don't think people kind of understand that. We have a term that I teach in, in my uh, fisheries course called uh, shifting baseline syndrome. So a very famous scientist by the name of Daniel Pauly out at UBC, um, he either coined it or he, he promoted it. And it says from generation from generation to generation, we don't really recognize how good it was before. So there's these intergenerational changes that are imperceptible, and we think we can kind of push it back. But as somebody once said, twice of almost nothing left is still not much left. And so um, the shifting baseline syndrome is so rapid now that I can see it in my own lifetime. You know, uh, and they say you can't fight City Hall because City Hall at the core, local governments are really, you know, we have senior governments that do deal with environmental issues, fisheries issues, uh, landscape and ecosystem issues. But when um, the local community wants to develop something, they do. And uh, there's often very little resistance, even if somebody you know, who's considered, considered a weirdo, enviro-freak or whatever, uh, tries to oppose it, there's usually very little resistance to development and loss. And most people, um, conceptually, verbally, they agree, but most people aren't willing to fight for things often that are really, I think, keystone and critical to future generations. 
Interesting. So the common kind of response is, yes, we may have lost uh, some some great fish, some great habitats um, that were naturally here, but now our agriculture industry is just killing it. Um, the, the argument is often, I think we produce something like 80% of most of the agriculture for BC, and then we're exporting that. And the, the soil is so fertile, and, and things are we're, we're able to do things so quickly. What do you say to people who have that sort of position? Well, I guess I can't really say too much. You know, uh, I wrote a major paper on it in somewhere around uh, 2004, I guess. Um, the impacts of agriculture on fisheries in Eastern Fraser Valley. And um, it's a very detailed, a lot of stuff, historical stuff. Uh, um, now, here I was born and raised. Uh, you know, I have Fraser River uh, mud flowing through my veins kind of thing, right? Uh, so I am, you know, this is this is sort of my home and native land, so to speak, even though uh, my ancestors came from far away. But in the context of um, the changes that I see, I almost kind of, you know, getting old and grumpy, I think, because I'll drive down uh, the road that I haven't driven down somewhere in eastern Fraser Valley and all of a sudden there's a ditch that's filled in that I knew used to have coho or sticklebacks or, and I'll see a, a pond that used to have ducks in it. Now it's got a subdivision on it. Or, um, you know, there's this grand mansion in an area that uh, was a wooded area. And so um, that makes me feel sad, but I'm not sure that... Um, Anything is really going to change, you know. The the stream, the steamroller of humanity keeps moving on and crushing the weak and the defenseless. And uh, face it, natural resource management is um, about trying to protect the weak and defenseless, fish and frogs and turtles and and birds and mammals stuff like that. But having a nice house and a nice SUV in the front yard, we all kind of like that. But, you know, it's the other guy's problem. It's not my problem. It's that country's problem. It's not my problem. And so we keep deflecting till we've got nothing left. Do you feel like um, materialism has increased over your lifetime? Do you feel like people, it's often referred to, and again, you can be like challenged with like what things actually were, but it, it sounds like after World War II, after the Great Recession, people were more frugal. They were more careful about what they bought. They tried to use things to the bitter end. Um, my grandmother was certainly that way. Indigenous communities are often that way. It seems like con conserving things, trying to use it to the end, that's not as kind of discussed. And I'm just interested to know, do you think that this growth of, well, I don't just want one car, we need an extra car just in case something comes up. Do you think that that's increased or is it just human nature to want extra things? I think it's core human nature. I don't think it's ever changed from the beginning of time. Now, um, so I'm a child of children of the Depression. And um, my dad went back to school. He never, he went to grade seven, I think, and decided he didn't want to be a mechanic at Fraser Vell for the rest of his life. So he actually went back to school and he ended up um, uh, getting a university degree, a technical degree at BCIT. And that, because he was a mechanic, you know, heavy duty mechanic, then went to UBC, got his teaching degree, and then he became a teacher actually here at Chilliwack 
senior secondary, and then later on at better senior secondary. And so for a time period, our family had to be very frugal, you know, so child of uh, children of the Depression, and then we had our own little, what we called an austerity program, a little mini austerity program when my father was at school. And so um, at least some of the family, uh, me being the oldest, tend to be very conservative. You know, take an old pair of running shoes and I'll glue it up. And, you know, not that I can't buy a you know a new pair of running shoes. I got a nice truck and I got a nice house. But, you know, I'm still stitching together things from an old backpack that's got a little rip in it and batching old fishing rods and, you know, uh, scrounging up uh, lawnmowers that still are perfectly good, but maybe aren't the, you know, the cleanest and sleekest. So, you know, uh, but I think at the core, I think at the core, uh, post-World War II, I think World War II children uh, and that generation, you know, that was the righteous generation. Um, it knocked them back on their socks so badly in terms of um, having to be careful that they did, you know, it sort of made them more careful about how they dealt with stuff. But as life got easier, yeah, people are maybe more um, materialistic, but I think the core, if you've got it, you're going to grab it and you're going to flaunt it. I think it's pretty core human nature. Yeah, one of my big concerns is that maybe there's there's small benefits, but I think we're heading back to something similar based on the inflation rates, um, based on kind of our, our economic decisions. I think we're going to uh, face a, a pretty rough recession uh, that will give us some of those inklings again. I, I would sort of agree with you, but, you know, I've seen that sort of, that sort of um, perspective, you know, so, you know, I'm, maybe a little bit older than you, but I've seen this sort of woe is us, things are going to go bad. And, uh, and and we really have a short time frame, you know, 100 years or 75 years or 50 years or 20 years. It's not a very long time period. And we've seen economic cycles and, you know, I invest RSPs and stuff like that. And I've seen the ups and downs. And uh, I think psychologically, if the resources are there, we will continue to try and hang on to those nice cars and um, you know televisions and nice houses and stuff like that because we've already got a taste of it and and we will sacrifice a lot of things we'll sacrifice sight sea on the peace river and uh, oil and gas exploration and you know there's whole areas in northern british columbia that are crisscrossed by seismic lines like when i back in the 1970s when i was still a young uh, student um, I was just shocked at the devastation of this wilderness because these guys were cutting these lines and then doing the blasting uh, to figure out uh, seismically where the yeah. gas was and, or oil was. And uh, I think, uh, you know, as um, uh, Mr. Gecko uh, said in the, the movie Wall Street, which sort of dates me a little bit, greed is good. You know, we're, we're, we are a pretty greedy species and we will, you know, when you, when you look at um, uh, Jared Diamond's collapse and you see the collapse of, you know, the Mayan, you know, Easter Island, um, various communities around the world, societies around the world. Um, uh, and uh, I, I suspect they weren't dumb people. You know, they built magnificent cultures and buildings and palaces and stuff like that. But greed still ended up um, pushing, tipping them over the edge. And uh, 
while in his book he tries to be optimistic. I, I'm not nearly as optimistic um, in respect to planetary. And people, it's, it's not to say we're going to go extinct. We're probably not going to go extinct, but there may be vast changes. You know, COVID, COVID was just shut the planet down to the point where we had clean air, clean water. You know, Venice itself said, oh, look at those. You can see the bottom of the canals and, you know, dolphins are coming to swim in the in the canals in Venice and you go like, okay, well, we had a little blip in time, you know, COVID around the world. I don't know what it killed 5 million people out of 8 billion people, you know, nothing, a war, a war in Ukraine that no, killed, you know, front news. Everybody's upset about it. But, um, you know, in terms of the mortality, both citizen and, uh, the military mortalities or casualties, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny blip. And so um, there would have to be a mass uh, catastrophe, I think, to really change our mindsets. That these little mindsets are, and you can see it. If you use the stock market, you know, oh, it dropped. Oh, all of a sudden it's back up. To, oh, dropped. Oh, you know, you know, it's uh, we're very, we're a very um, resilient, invasive species, and perhaps a meteor crashing onto the planet. Or uh, maybe a nuclear war. Even if a nuclear war, you know, or a meteor killed three billion people, it would still not be the, the number of people on the planet. Which you know, five billion left would still be only a few decades going back. So we have this geometric progression. So when you loop it back to, you know, southwestern British Columbia, uh, the Vetter River, the Chilliwack River, the richness. We're always willing to compromise, uh, it seems. I definitely agree, particularly like Ukraine seems to be a good example because while it seems like everybody's heart is in it, um, at the end of each day, it feels like what people care more about is what their gas prices are. That's right. Uh, more than what's going on there. And when you look at how much Canada, like a lot of the US, the money they're sending is more like debt than it is uh, real, just free flowing financial support. And I think a lot of people kind of get that confused that there is a repayment plan sort of in place with the Ukraine yeah. um, that isn't like, oh, we're just 100% invested in that and we're, we're going to go all out. And um, I was just listening to a CIA analyst kind of break down how to look at this. And he was like, if you look at it more objectively, Russia is starting to win, which is the European countries are starting to go, okay, we need oil. Like we cannot survive a winter without oil. Um, our like houses are going to freeze. People yeah. are going to die. So how do we, it's time to resolve. Like people are getting kind of, this can't continue um, for economic prosperity, not for um, what's right, what's just um, analysis like that. How do you feel then when you're talking about the growth of hu uh, humans, this concern around Japan? Japan seems to be an example of their oldest populations, their largest. They don't have um, a growing population. So they're trying to start to look at immigration to bring people in because they don't have enough people. Um, and their, their country is starting to decrease in size. And, uh, people are starting to float the idea of like uh, civilization collapse in terms of us dropping from that 8 billion number um, downwards. Um, I've seen a few different posts about that. And I'm just, uh, do you think that that's all bunkum, like it's all silliness or, or is there any weight to that? I think Japan's the main example right now. Well, our um, ecological footprint, so there's some well-known BC, UBC 
researchers who've talked about the ecological footprint. I think we've, you know, a question on one of my exams for my students where I teach at BCIT. Uh, we passed the ecological footprint. Boy, I'm, I'm going to get heck from this from my students because I can't remember offhand. But I think it was 1984 is when we, you know, the uh, to be able to have a sustainable uh, impact on the planet was something like 1984, I think. Uh, so this includes water, uh, sewage, food, air, recycling, you know, the natural recycling of um, things like CO2 into the atmosphere. And so the um, question I have is like, okay, I don't know how many people are in Japan. Uh, I think Germany is 80 million. United States is 300 million plus. What was wrong with 100 million? Like why, why can't we shrink the population size, population size and resource extraction, including the world that I work in, fisheries, um, is tied to uh, numbers of people, okay? And so um, we had a little incident here, a little issue over the last year and a half, which was uh, a really um, gorgeous piece of Fraser River ecosystem just outside of Chilliwack called Gill Bar, Gill Island, Gill Road. And the mud boggers and four-wheel drivers um, just came in over the last several years. COVID ha- didn't help matters any because people were staying home. And they just thrashed, the, thrashed that whole ecosystem. And it's basically a series of wetlands and channels and uh, wooded islands and stuff like that within what we call the heart of the Fraser a myriad of islands, wetlands, and channels between Hope and Mission here in the Fraser in, in uh, British Columbia. And we fought the battle, you know, to, talking to the ministers and resource enforcement guys. Um, I used to go on that bar um, in my four-wheel drive. We used to walk on it. We used to pick agates. We used to fish on it. Uh, we used to do all sorts of things. But the intensity of our use was literally a tiny, tiny fraction of what it ended up becoming in 2020, 2021, 2022. A lot of people ain't really angry about the shutdown of the Gill Bar uh, ecosystem to mud boggers and campers and, you know, just uh, terrorizing the landscape by burning pallets and cars and stuff like that. But I think, it, you know, it had to be done. And it really has to, that area between Mission and Hope called Heart of the Fraser, a bunch of really extraordinary islands that are fish habitat, wildlife habitat, plant habitat. Uh, if we want to ha- save the Fraser River, it's an integral part of the Fraser. Why, hasn't, why haven't people figured that out already? Okay, we've squeezed the Fraser wetland channel stream ecosystem to a tiny sliver of what it was in um, pre-European settlement, you know, 1800. And now we're destroying the last little bit. And so this this massive population squeeze is just basically tearing the landscape apart. And we'll win a few battles, but I'm not sure that we're going to win the war if uh, children and future generations want to see something that's at least even remotely intact to what it was uh, pre-European and even probably some aspects of... Uh, uh, pre-First Nation settlement going back, you know, hundreds of years or maybe even thousands of years. Can you tell us what what it is that makes it 
uh, beautiful, important for people who are riding their ATVs, who don't understand, who who don't have the context of what they're impacting when they're driving along there. Um, my partner and I, when we were walking, we saw somebody land a plane on that kind of rock bed spot. And it was just like... Is this the place for that? Is this what is this what's appropriate? Like it it doesn't seem like that one specifically took a lot of critical thinking to go maybe we shouldn't ride along here. But can you just help people understand what they're what they're impacting? Well, essentially the uh, utilization of motorized vehicles is just chewing the landscape up. You can see it, you know, the, and quite frankly, the enforcement staff, DFO and the province so uh, fisheries officers, conservation officers, have never been educated to see what constitutes an intact ecosystem and what constitutes basically a broken ecosystem. And um, I have no problem with a four-wheel drive going down that bar. I have no problem with two four-wheel drives going down that bar. But when we have 10,000, and I think we had something like 10,000 or between ten and 20,000 in our measurement. We see cameras up there to actually do a measurement. It chews the landscapes to, landscape to bits. And the fish, the wildlife, the sturgeon incubation, so sturgeon spawn in the springtime when freshet is high and the whole river is, is covered over. Well, in the wintertime when that same river bottom where sturgeon lay their eggs on uh, is chewed up by four-wheel drives and mud boggers and quads, uh, at some point, the whole system unravels. So an intact physical... Sometimes you just have to draw boundaries around areas, okay? So from hope to mission, I think you have to draw a red line around it. Yeah, there are some activities. Uh, First Nations are going to continue to fish it. Uh, sport anglers can continue to fish it. You know, there's people that are going to camp. You you can have restricted areas. You say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna sacrifice this area so people can enjoy it. But when you have this sort of mass, it's kind of like Mad Max. It's literally like Mad Max. And we pointed out to the mayor, um, Ken Popov, um, what it was like. And people are just kind of sitting there aghast at some of the videos of how things are being destroyed. So somebody at some level in government. Kind of said, yeah, you know, what? a small group that I work with called the Gravel Stewardship Group, and we lobbied and lobbied hard, had some good media attention, but this mass of humanity coming down and just basically chewing a landscape up, landscape can't survive that. Wow. So do you feel like it was a municipal move that really showed support? What, When you think of what makes an effort successful, because people do protest various issues yep. and fail regularly, yep. do you have any thoughts on what leads a successful campaign to try and protect something like the heart of the Fraser? Well, at a superficial level, I can say yes, because DFO was the agency that shut it down. Now, the number one damage that to... The public viewscape, as it were, is fish and fisheries. Uh, but, you know, the mayor might have been calling up the minister of fisheries. Uh, the uh, guys in uh, Region 2 and um, in the uh, Forest Lands and Natural Resource Operations um, might have been sending memos to, uh, to their minister or ADMs or whatever. And so... At, at a uh, visual perspective, it was DFO that put the signs up in the block, you know, the blockade, the big lock block rock, um, concrete barriers. 
Uh, but at the end of the day, there's probably a pile of agency, different political um, influences, phone calls and stuff like that. And, of course, the media helped a lot. The media was really important in influencing it. And so it's, it's tough to say when a decision is made. And I'm pretty tied into, um, you know, at the ministerial level. I was out on the river with a, a senior federal minister a few weeks ago, um, you know, and chat with uh, members of parliament, MLAs and stuff like that. I've done that over the years. Um, <clears throat> you can see who where the final decision does come down. And I'm not sure that DFO was the right agencies to shut it down. I'm glad that they did. But uh, maybe it should have been the city of Chilliwack. Maybe it should have been um, uh, the Ministry of Environment uh, or whatever it's called now, BC Environment, uh, Land Wars in um, the province. But everybody kind of has a, a role to play. So it's tough to say who really triggered it, but it's certainly at the at the uh, sort of um, open visual perspective was DFO, which was good. Yeah, because I think of like what makes development successful like I, i'm trying to it seems like some people who care about the environment they don't have the resources the expertise the the collaboration that like say a big development company has when they're like okay we're gonna go lobby this person then we're gonna go lobby this person we're gonna have dinner with that person and it's all very business professional kind of energy when you hear environmentalists stopping vans or, or trucks in the middle of a bridge it's like who is going to want to sit down with that person after an incident like that? And I think there is a role to play with that, using your voice strongly. But business seems to win. And there's beyond just economic success, it seems like there's something in their recipe that's effective in communicating and b being someone like yourself, which is just reasonable. Hey, these are the things that are going to happen as a consequence. If we do this, if we don't do this, this is going to be some of the consequences we're going to have to look at. Well, I'm a little bit different than most uh, advocates, environmental advocates, uh, in that I have uh, 10 years of academic training. And uh, I grew up in the Fraser Valley. So this is my territorial imperative, okay? This is the um, landscape that I feel most uh, attached to, most protective of, most, um, I'll say, uh, glued to. And so there's a guy by the name of Robert Ardry who wrote a book uh, called The Territorial Imperative. It says, where you were born and raised, that's the area that you will fight for. So I go to, you know, New Zealand, which I spent time in New Zealand, and uh, I see the same sort of damage that occurs in New Zealand watersheds. And I go, oh, no, I really don't like this. And, I, and I'm very attached to New Zealand. I spent probably five years of my life close to in New Zealand. But when I cycle back, this is the one area that I really fight for. And um, so this territorial imperative. Um, and I've got the academic background. I've got the... And I've never... I guess I kind of ascribed... I once told an old girlfriend trying to impress her that uh, I was going to be an assistant deputy minister one day and I uh, probably had the qualifications too but I didn't have the I didn't have the hard wiring I didn't have the sort of mental um, uh, I guess I always kind of felt that when you were climbed up the ladder within government or industry or business you had to compromise a lot and there's a lot of you know I do have to compromise you know it's not that uh, you know I can't um, spend all my whole life fighting every every little creek and every little pond 
Uh, but at some point uh, in government, and in 2003, I actually basically got pushed out of government. I was told by the premier at the time. And um, sorry, that was Gordon Campbell. Yeah, Campbell, yeah, I was told it was he was he. he that's what I was told. Uh, anyways, I had a very uh, how would I put it? Uh, uh, what was it, at that time sort of catastrophic um, uh, removal out of government uh, into a secondment. I was still paid by the government, but uh, I was interfering with some um, of the local uh, MLAs and business here in Chilliwack on gra gravel removal in the Fraser River, plus a big development out at um, Mission at Silvermere Lake. And so uh, my ability to compromise on some of these issues uh, is probably not very good, much to my sort of social and uh, uh, intellectual detriment, perhaps. But, um, you know, so... Um, became very clear quite early on in my well middle part of my career I wasn't going to go too far up the sort of the ladder in government because you had a limit because you saw that you had to take a stand at a certain point and you couldn't continue any further uh, down that rabbit hole well pretty well you know uh, one of the issues was the development at Silvermere Lake and one of the sort of junior techs I sort of reviewed a development there and uh, years later, he said, you know, Marvin, if you would have just uh, written what I told you, uh, uh, you wouldn't have um, uh, you wouldn't have got kicked out of government. Now, I, I didn't get kicked out of government per se, because I just got reshifted out to UBC, which was a, it was actually a wonderful experience. Got to work under Daniel Pauly. Uh, basically, what I did was I just hid in a corner and finished up a pile of reports and things uh, that were outstanding in my work at uh, in Region 2. Uh, with the Ministry of Environment, which at that time was Waterland and Air Protection. And then um, I, BCIT came calling, and I've had a wonderful 20-year experience at BCIT um, over that time frame. This really, uh, it all comes together. First, I interviewed uh, Lee Harding, who is uh, focused on wolf culling and caribou populations, and he very much described something similar to what you said, which is they formed like a, a commission on uh, what causes uh, caribou populations to decline, and they determined that it was um, more about the ecosystems around it than it was wolves. Yeah. They didn't like that. So yeah. they said, out with this committee, we're going to bring in a new committee, reform it. Yeah. They need to come to the conclusion that it's wolves. Yeah. That committee did not come to the conclusion that it was wolves. Then they formed a third committee, and they ended up determining that it was wolves that uh -huh. were the problem. And now they wolf cull, which yeah. I, still, when I say that you have to go in a helicopter with a gun and shoot them from the sky, just seems like BC would be so far past something like that. Like, it still just doesn't seem even possible that we do something like that. Then I sit down with Daryl Plekis, who was an MLA in Abbotsford, and he talks about trying to just stop grizzly bear hunting and how all the research, all the information says that we need to reduce this approach as soon as possible. Yeah. And he's a BC liberal, so he's yeah. sitting in the room with other BC liberals, hoping they will agree. And he in the first interview and the second interview says they never made a decision that he saw that ever was based on what the public interest was, was always in the interest of who's going to vote for them yep. and what benefits their donors and that kind of mindset. And that is absolutely terrifying to think that like we, 
many people have their kind of suspicions about government. Are they good? Are they bad? What's going on behind the scenes? But for him to just sit down and say that it was not based on what's for the good of the public is very alarming because we vote these people in. Now, to his credit, he's been very pleased with the direction the NDP has chosen to go in recent years. And he, in our recent conversation, talked about how we need to understand that they have years that they're going to need in order to undo some of the terrible decisions. Um, But I'm interested in your thoughts on specifically Site C, because the NDP fiercely against it. And now I just heard from David Eby, and this is great power for our community. This is going to be a good investment for British Columbians, and we can be confident in our power use. But you mentioned that is something that was maybe bad for the habitat. Can you elaborate on that? Okay. Uh, I don't know the specifics of Site C... Uh, per se, I've been up to the Peace River uh, back in my graduate school days, and um, you know I I, I I know it at a superficial level, but I was working before Site C came online. Uh, I was the BC hydro fish or the hydro fish person out of Victoria for several years, so I was reporting to the. Uh, assistant deputy minister at the time, uh, John Reardon, and a few others. And so I had a familiarity, particularly with the Lower Mainland Project. So Walleach, uh, Stave, um, Ruskin, Chequemus. Chequemus was a big battle. Uh, BC Hydro was stealing water. They were not licensed to take the water that they were taking. And uh, so I went and applied for the water. I applied for $10 million worth of water per year that they weren't licensed for. Oh, did the crap ever hit the fan on that one? And uh, this was a career-limiting move, right? And uh, one of the senior vice presidents of BC Hydro wrote a note to the assistant deputy minister. I don't know uh, how we're going to get along here when uh, you have these really environmental um, uh, biologists you know, trying to um, be environmental around (laughs) around our BC Hydro projects. Okay, so so I I knew the details of hydro issues, and um, you know the extraordinary um, importance of the peace flowing northward, you know, in through northern BC and you know into the Mackenzie water system is just, you know, and intuitively when you're screwing up that much of the landscape, um, you know, when you're affecting. uh, large scales of uh, benchland and wetland and changing flow regimes, the impacts are going to be, you know, phenomenal. And this idea, you know, in the old days, it used to just build it. I worked on the Revelstoke Dam project back in the 1970s uh, on the Columbia, you know, and they open the water up in the morning and then at night they shut it down. And, you know, rivers don't work that way. You know, they don't work on a 24-hour cycle. You don't have water pulsing down during the daytime when, People at home are turning on their TVs and plugging in their toasters and stuff like that. And then at night you shut off when the power is not needed. And so, um, you know, intuitively, the I'm going to guess the P Site C is a really devastating. What do we need the power for? Okay, well, you know what? It's an economic generator. You know, we, you know, I was really tied into how much the power was worth, how much we were um, needing in British Columbia. Uh, I'm going to guess that it's an, well in excess of what we need when you have all the independent power projects around uh, British Columbia. 
then loop on top of that uh, site C. And so um, it's for sale. We can now, we are now linked into the North American grid. We were not historically linked into the North American grid. And we can now wheel power to, back, you know, back in the day when I was working on, down to uh, Texas. We can wheel it down to California. We can trade power. You know, power can be traded on an instantaneous basis between Alberta and uh, British Columbia. So really? uh, the big uh, power plants that are coal-fired in Alberta, uh, they can't ramp up and down with the power regime the way we can in British Columbia. So they can hold its... You know, and I had a cousin who was a power engineer in one of the big uh, facilities in Alberta. So my understanding is that uh, coal-fired plants have to remain stable. So BC Hydro buys and sells power depending on the time of day uh, for uh, things like the piece. It can wheel it back and forth. We can use the power to, I don't know, compress gas in the northeastern part of the province. So, you know... Um, the idea that somebody would say, well, you know, this is a great thing for the province. Well, it might be, uh, you know, in terms of our economic uh, rent and revenue. Hey, I can have two four-wheel drives in my front yard rather than just one because we're so rich. Um, but in terms of the ecosystem, sustainability, future generations, uh, EB might be wrong. I would just I would just throw that out there. So the assumption right now is that we need to go to natural ways, solar energy, uh, hydro. Um, so do you think that we're focusing too much on hydro? Do you think we could do this better? Um, what is kind of the big argument right now is like uh, we saw the steepest increase in electric cars in the Fraser Valley recently. Yep. Um, and so the argument is, well, now that the car is electric, the hydroelectric dam uh, is, is natural. Um, it's it's not harmful to the same extent that coal or gas or stuff like that is. Uh, so now you have like a green ecosystem. Um, it seems like when I spoke to, I don't know if you know Peter Ross, he's a notion pollution expert. Okay. Um, and he's been doing some research along the Fraser as well in the damage to the, the ecosystems after the floods. And one of his comments was like, we love our blue bins. We feel good about ourselves with our blue bins. Uh, it was invented in Canada. It makes us feel warm and fuzzy that we're doing the right thing. And he was like, they almost do nothing. They have very small impact in comparison to the amount of, like, it basically made us feel okay using plastics because we were like, well, it's being recycled. And it's like, well, a very small amount actually gets effectively recycled. And then you have to use a lot of power in order to break that down and reuse it. And so it isn't an untrammeled good. Yep. It didn't fix the problem with plastics. Yep. Um, but that's what we want. We want this easy fix. Oh, now we've got hydro. We're good to go. So what are we missing when we're thinking about hydro? It sounds like ecosystems are, are really impacted. Well, hydro does a lot of things. It changes flow regimes, which are fish are adapted to in streams. Uh, it floods uh, terrestrial ecosystems. Uh, it releases greenhouse gas, so the methane coming out of the uh, landscape that's flooded, all the vegetation that's left. Uh, in some cases, we log the daylights out of that uh, vegetation before the area is flooded. But it still uh, um, basically disrupts vast uh, areas of ecosystem. Uh, and essentially, it's, it's it's not green. You know, uh, dams uh, may be less CO two intensive, and in, in terms of their production. So, in other words, the greenhouse gases that come out of the flooded um, uh, landscapes. But you know, 
I'm I'm not a, into it at that detail, so I can't tell what the trade-offs are, say, compared to a, um, you know, do we want a, uh, an impact, impacted salmon uh, river? Uh, the Coquitlam River was a, you know, Alouette River, Stave River, some lower mainland streams, uh, even to the, to an extent the uh, Wallach Jones uh, facility up the valley near Hope. So the flow regimes were changed, uh, ramping, flows go up and down on a daily basis. You know, is that ecosystem worth trading off versus um, maybe a natural gas uh, cogen plant that produces electricity? You know, so I don't know the, the numbers, but I think um, really there's there's a couple of things that are important. One is population control. So that's getting outside of my sphere of, of sort of expertise. But, but I do talk a little bit about it in my environmental monitoring course that, you know, that curve that goes like that. And in terms of our ability to control trash, you know, the blue bins, the green bins, you know, we, we get better but then the population continues to increase. Lower mainland is going to explode, continue to explode. You know, every time I go to a, you know, I'll take a wrong turn and I'll end up in a subdivision or an area that uh, I hadn't been for three or four years. Oh, there's a huge subdivision. You know, I, I met somebody up at a golf course in Mission um, last week and I got lost. So I ended up, got lost because there was roads that were blockaded because there's some construction going on. So I had to make a big loop around. Holy crap. This is a huge subject. This is, you know, there's a whole mountainside, you know, and, and so the um, concrete trucks and the, you know, the construction, you know, the wood, piles of wood and and asphalt and uh, soil and stuff like this, like, you know, just just uh, ex nihilo, just out of nothing. All of a sudden, there was a there was a community, you know, in the western um, part of Mission. That would have been probably the size of a town in northern BC. Just boom, just and you know the construction was still going on. And so, uh, until we find a way to control population growth, which isn't going to happen. So I, I'm distressed to hear that Japan might be trying to bring people in. Like, wasn't when I was a kid, you know, wasn't the Fraser Valley of you know, if, you know, a few tens of thousands of people in Chilliwack a great life? It was a great life. Like, why do I need an extra? four-wheel drive in my front yard when I could go back to my childhood ecosystem and catch frogs in the backyard and have uh, crows cawing on the fence posts and stuff like that. You know, it, the, 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 you know the, human, the human mind is uh, a strange and terrible thing. So my other understanding is that we're looking at bringing even in, in more people to address the nursing shortage and the doctor shortage that we are going to start increasing and in pitching. Uh, if Mr. Eby is elected as the leader of the NDP, he'd like to uh, push the federal government to bring in even more people to the BC to fill those gaps in service. And that would increase our immigration numbers, increase the amount of people. Um, as you've already described, we're increasing a lot. So do you think that we just don't understand the importance of these ecosystems, the impacts that it has? I had an individual, Chris Koo, on who's a, a, a really passionate birder, and he was explaining uh, like a pond in Delta creates this very specific like amino acid that's incredibly important for birds that fly in from like the U.S. or something, yep. and they eat there, and then they go all the way to like Alaska or something. Like we don't, 
normal people, they go, that's a pond. That's a yep. pond like every other pond, but yep. it does something unique. Do you think we struggle, struggle to understand the nuances of the different ecosystems and, and how they play a role? No, I don't think we struggle. I don't think, and I'm talking about we as a society, we just don't care. Oh. We're not interested. Okay. There's a few, I'll call them weirdos like myself that, you know, we're lifting up a rock. We're looking at a worm under it. We're looking at, you know, picking up a stick and looking at the squirrel that's trying to hide from you. We're, we're snorkeling down the stream, counting fish and that sort of stuff. But the general public uh, is not really interested in these nuanced uh, aspects of ecosystems. Um, you know, this, this was an extraordinary ecosystem, the eastern Fraser Valley, the Chilok. There's a vast myriad of wetlands and channels. And now we've got a cranberry farm being built on one of the large islands uh, out in the Nakoman um, Island area, Nakoman Slough area. Cranberry farm, you know? Like, like this area is flooded every springtime, sometimes right over the top. There's Harrison River sockeye rearing there, uh, Chinook, um, chum salmon, and I think it's 200, around 240 acres. We're obliterating it. We're allowing it to be obliterated. Like, you know, we're going to build a hatchery. We're going to build a, uh, a $20 million hatchery down the, down the road. And our operation maintenance is going to be 2 or $3 million a year. But we couldn't have, and it was for sale. Five years ago, it was for sale for $3 million. And we can't, we can't buy and protect a $3 million. It's, it's going to be a lot more now because it's, it, it's now owned by somebody who's developing it. Uh, we can't do that. Like, how insane is that? Like, um, we, we kind of think we're rational here in British Columbia. Uh, government, you talk to people in government. Right? Yeah, I worked in government for, for a dec decade and a half, almost two decades. Government is not rational in terms of sustainability. Uh, it runs on levels of uh, insanity, on mistruths, and um, basically out-and-out out out lies. But, you know, individuals within government, and myself too, when I was in government, even now, you know, it's easy to, well, okay, we can compromise on this, and we can, we can shade that, and we can uh, kind of look the other way for that, and yeah, it'll probably be okay. But at the end of the day... Um, you know, our shifting baseline, the next generation, next generation, won't have uh, anything that even comes close to being intact. Was there a point in time where, was it when you were, like, pushed out from the, the inner sphere of government that you were involved in, where you started to go, we're not on the right track, and it doesn't seem like there's much of a push to be on the right track? Because personally, I, I want to see all of these things protected and improved and, and uh, made better. But it seems like it's not easy to go step one, step two, step three with with the general public. Uh, like we don't, I didn't know about that complex ecosystem there. I would have called it a pond prior. And so it seems like the public is really, to a certain extent, ignorant about the, the finer details of the consequences of these things. Um, and then to a certain extent, that ignorance impacts our ability to stand up for things. Well, uh, even the even with the resource managers um, don't understand it very well. So uh, I had an interview the other day about fish farms. Uh, so with the Fraser sockeye, um, 
I'll call it population. It's a myriad of populations, but has done very poorly this year, relatively poorly this year, compared to Alaska, Bristol Bay, pushing 80 million fish, record run, uh, Columbia River, uh, sockeye run, mostly Canadian in the Okanagan system. They've had a little bit of help, but um, uh, phenomenal run this year, record run. It's a small run. I'll, I'll call it again, this complex of runs, but the, the Columbia sockeye run was... Uh, uh, I think close to 700,000 fish. Man, little old Okanagan and Wenatchee, the two main systems in the Columbia that produce sockeye, had more sockeye coming back in 2020. I think uh, for the whole Fraser system had 350,000 roughly fish and change. The whole Fraser ecosystem could only produce a third of a million sockeye. And little old Skaha Lake, Osoyoos Lake, Wenatchee Lake can produce twice that amount. Okay, and why why aren't all the 92 plus or minus First Nations bands up and down the Fraser, why isn't every commercial fishing entity, why isn't every sport fishing entity, why isn't just people that like to know that there's intact... Um, Sockeye runs, and the other salmon populations are in the same boat, really. You know, we have a little, few little bright spots here and there, but for the most part, Fraser River salmon ecosystems have collapsed. And my view, strong view, is that it's tied to fish farms, okay? But there's a, there's a whole body of information that I've looked at that leads me to that conclusion. Why aren't these groups all just going to Ottawa and basically, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to... Uh, sound like I'm um, fostering a revolution, but basically burning the place down, saying you have to do something. Okay, this the salmon and steelhead collapses within the Fraser and uh, uh, Greater Georgia Basin ecosystem, and Puget Sound's affected as well. The Salish Sea ecosystem, from a salmon perspective, has absolutely collapsed. And why aren't people just going crazy telling government and whomever that this has to be fixed? This is like the dodo going extinct. It's like passenger pigeons. Yet yet in um, 2022, you know, we had, right now it's just under 6 million coming back. So we went in 2010, around 28 million sockeye coming back, 2014-20. Uh, 2018, it was 10, and uh, it was five and change. I think it's the in-season estimate is up to six now. But um, and and again, coho freezer cove may basically collapsed. Freezer steelhead, including winter runs, summer and winter runs. Freezer chinooks, you know, even you know, and we have these little bumps. And we go, oh well, everything's going back. But in reality, if you look at the long term. Uh, trends since the 1980s and early 90s, for the most part, everything has gone in a downward direction. But hey, you know, can't be fish farms because, um, oh, it's the seals, seals and sea lions. No, it's climate change. No, it's urbanization. No, you know, uh, and, and so you have even the scientists, the biologists, and the resource managers are at odds with one another. How is the general public going to figure that out? And so it makes it easy for a monolithic block like the fish farming industry. Say, you know, we've got the science. It's not an issue. Blah blah blah. Right. And and you know, it's a 
it's a multi-billion dollar. I, I forget what the gate um, gate receipts are for. Um, you know, it's several billion dollars in British Columbia. It's the biggest agricultural product in British Columbia. And the Cohen Commission said, hey, take them out of there by 2025. Well, took a few out of Broughton Archipelago. And there's now fish taken out, or fish farms taken out a Discovery Passage, which is that Fraser River, Fraser River uh, pathway for the little babies to go out. Disease, uh, sea lice attached to the sides of the bodies of the fish and kind of chew them up and make them uh, less viable for survival. But uh, hey, you know. And and so the big run, 220, 218, 214, 210, uh, 206, those, that sort of cycle of runs, which is mostly the big Shushwap, uh, Southern, uh, South Thompson watershed, you know, um, the, the runs into the subdominant and, uh, and non, uh, dominant year classes or cycles, because sockeye mostly a four year cycle, not always, but mostly, uh, have mostly collapsed as well. Like, this is insane. But we're we're willing to kind of look sideways. We're we're not willing, you know, like again in the fish farm Cohen Commission, mostly, you know, I, I actually testified on uh at least one on habitat issues, mostly Fraser River Gravel. And I did three reports for the Cohen Commission. It's just a <laughs> It was mostly just lawyers making lots of money, in my in my view, at the end of the day. And I was interviewed prior to the Cohen Commission getting started when they first announced it. And I said, well, I guess we'll see at the end of the day. Um, and some fairly prominent members of parliament, you know, uh, in environmental critics or fisheries critics came and talked to me. I said, gave them my presentation. I said, wow, what can we do? And I said, well, you know, you guys, I didn't say it exactly, but, you know, you guys kind of were probably the issue to, for it happening um i said you can you can get some information doing trial removals um nootka sound steelhead the gold river have basically collapsed it flows into nootka sound just plugged with fish farms you can do some experimental stuff but i don't think uh governments are willing to really do the hardcore experimental stuff that is required to get an answer can you explain what a fish run is, like the process? Because um, you hear, oh, this is a big run this year. It's, it's going to be huge. How does this function? What is the, like, uh, how do you understand the migration of fish? Because as I spoke to Dean about, they move so many different spots. We, yeah. can't, we can't just go, oh, they're going to go here, they're here, then here. They're, they're fish. They go where they like, and they, they'll stop in different spots. So how do we think about just the migration of fish? Well, uh, I guess in terms of migration, and I'll stick to salmonids, sa- salmon and trout, um, and they ha- have, uh, you know, relatively similar life history patterns. Uh, salmon are mostly anadromists. In other words, they go born in freshwater, might rear a little bit, go to sea, get most of their body mass in the ocean and come back and spawn and die. Um, and trout are steelhead, the anadromous version does sort of the same thing. Um, in terms of uh, what we would consider the keystone or capstone species in British Columbia, um, Pacific salmon, there's five species. And uh, probably the most high-profile one in British Columbia is sockeye. So I'll, I'll kind of concentrate on sockeye. But uh, Chinook have a very 
widely ranging um, life history pattern. I think there's Chinook number of Chinook runs in the Fraser watershed is huge in terms of the number of runs, but in terms of the population numbers, there's only several hundred thousand fish coming back to the Fraser. Whereas sockeye, even up until 2010, uh, there was close to 30 million fish coming back. And so they, uh, I'll, I'll stick to that life history. So, so sockeye, uh, very prized uh, First Nations up and down the coast, not so much in the Columbia South, except for that couple of little runs in the uh, Okanagan and Wenatchee, so Oregon and British South, Central South British Columbia. Uh, but um, Fraser Watershed in British Columbia was really subject to a lot of intense glaciation. So we've got these great big long trough lakes. So we've got uh, We've got Shushwap Lake, we've got Chilco Lake, we've got Quinell Lake, we've got uh, up in the Stewart Tack. We've got all these long, skinny, deep, cold, probably usually nutrient-poor uh, oligotrophic, call, call it oligotrophic lakes. Uh, so low nutrients, low productivity. That uh, sockeye, uh, when they come back to streams, most sockeye spawn in streams, although for salmon, they sometimes spawn in lakes. See? life history variation, uh, the little babies uh, uh, incubate over the winter time. So sockeye salmon spawn in the fall. We'll take Adams River as an example. Um, the uh, embryos, so just a, basically an egg that's starting to go through cell division, um, basically develops inside the eggshell like a chicken for about uh, three months, uh, hatches somewhere around uh, Christmas time, then the little wiggler, uh, which is a larva called uh, an elven, sits there using up the yolk sac and becoming a little fish, baby fish, comes out of the gravel, and sockeye go to a big lake. So they were in a lake for about a year. So they get to be about that big. We call them, they turn silvery, they become a smolt, and they whistle out through the Fraser. They might come down the Adams, South Thompson, Thompson, into the Fraser, down into the estuary, and out to sea. Sockeye probably don't like estuaries that much. They're ready. To, they're big enough to go out to sea. So Chum and Chinook really like estuaries, and to a lesser extent, pink salmon that have a shorter life history. So they go out to sea. So they're migrating. Fraser River sockeye smolts, as do most salmon smolts, not all, but many of them go northward uh, once they hit salt water, just past the ferry slip, uh, North Arm, Point Grey, and they go up, essentially go up through the myriad of, of islands and channels between uh, main body, northern Vancouver Island, and the mainland. And so they rich feeding ground. They go through all these islands, which, of course, are protected from big storms and, and waves and stuff like that, which is why the fish farmers like to site their facilities in these protected bays where the little sockeye and other species are kind of wandering along the edge. Oh, there's a big net there. Oh, there's nice food. I oh, I just got a sea lice, sea louse attached to me uh, because these fish farms are concentrators. They're biomagnification of sea lice. And then if they survive it, they go up past Port Hardy, Queen Charlotte Sound, and then boom, out in the open ocean. So uh, four-year cycle mostly for Fraser sockeye. And so the um, uh, we have s six months in the gravel as an embryo, a fertilized egg, or as an elven, as a larva. Then we have one full year in um, 
fresh water rearing in a lake. So that's a year and a half. So then uh, you take um, four years, subtract a year and a half from it. So that's uh, essentially two and a half years out in the marine environment. So they're going round and round and round in the open Pacific, um, feeding in these very rich areas uh, offshore. So us sport anglers like to catch Chinook and Coho that often will stay close to the to the um, inland waters, um, inland marine waters. But sockeye, um, pinks, and chums go offshore. And that's how come the Alaskans get a hold of them, because some of them come out through Alaska down back to British Columbia. We don't like that. And so they spend basically close, to, uh, you know, a little bit more than two years, and then they come back, they'll do landfall for Fraser Sockeye. They'll either come to northern Vancouver Island, come around the top, and then down through um, Johnson Strait, Discovery Channel, um, the various um, Seamer Narrows, and that's where some of the big uh, seine and gillnet fisheries are, and then down through to the mouth of Fraser. Or uh, they will, some years, they will landfall closer to the southern end of Vancouver Island, and then in those years, the diversion rate, so this was a high, generally a higher diversion rate south through Juan de Fuca. And so when they, in the old days, the bad old days, Americans used to really pound them before they got into Canadian waters because um, they went through their national waters. We now have the uh, Pacific Salmon Treaty that, and the Pacific Salmon Commission allows for sort of a uh, negotiated, safe, and mostly harvested by Canada agreements. So we catch American fish uh, off of Tofino or Euclulet um, um, because their Chinooks are going by. So we do these trade-offs. Anyway, so uh, early Stuart fish are the, are the nicest of the fish. I once caught one, probably illegally, a sport when I was a kid. Took it home. Oh, this is a, this is a Chinook. It's, no, it's soccer. Anyway, uh, that was a bad thing I did back in 1973. And we put it on the barbecue, and my goodness, it uh, it just melted on the barbecue. The fat and the juices it was just one of the most uh, scrumptious fish that I'd ever, salmon that I'd ever eaten. So First Nations really, really, really like those early Stuart fish because the first big, some Chinooks that come earlier, some steelhead, a few ab, odds and ends, but... Um, early Stuart sockeye and, and that one fish that I caught when I was 17 years old really impressed me at, at how fat and how rich and how silvery it was and I can understand why uh, those early fish in June are so prized you know historically by First Nations communities and then they uh, you know we got these other runs further north or usually earlier although we got some odd oddballs like Chilliwack uh, River Sockeye that go actually go through better Chilliwack, Chilliwack Lake, and then up into, well, it's actually down if you look in north-south, but across the border down into the uh, states. So some of the sockeye spawn on the Canadian side of the border, but the rest of the watershed, which is intact, Americans haven't really logged it, the upper Chilliwack um, watershed. <coughs> and um, so they... Um, in effect, uh, spawn up there. And so over June, July, August, and into September, we have these later and later runs that come through. 
and do their spawning and then the whole cycle starts again. Yeah, because this year we did our salmon ceremony only like a little over a month ago in our community because it was our first catch. It was our first ability to kind of bring that home to the community because everything was happening so late. Um, Do you... Dean talked about how he loves these fish, how he cares about them, how he sees the value they bring. But like for people, it's easy to look at dogs like a friend, um, something to admire. They might look at uh, bears or, or other wildlife like it's living, but we seem to struggle with trees, with, yep. with bugs, so with fish, as like, what is there to love about them and what is there to admire? And it seems like that is the drop off point for some people when we're talking about fish farms is my fish comes in a can. Like I buy it at the grocery store. There isn't a, when you hold it, it's slimy to people. Like they don't have maybe a memory that connects them the way Dean had talked about, the way you sort of talk about that relationship with the fish. Can you just describe your relationship, why you admire what you see in these animals uh, that so many might miss out on? Oh boy, you're you're parsing into the deep psychological depths of my personality here. Uh, Doing oh, my this best. Is, this is dangerous territory. I think um, you know. Um, I don't know. I just um, always fascinated by them. They were just uh, creatures that um, they were just different. You know, in the Eastern Fraser Valley, I think one of the first sort of things that really struck me was in our ditch um, on Banford Road, again, south of the highway. Um, so those ditches are have, been, have changed over the years. You know, the city of Chilliwack digs them deeper and deeper, and there's more manure coming into them, less riparian buffer zones. You know, in the old days with barbed wire fences, you didn't cut the grass right to the edge of the ditches. You actually left a little natural buffer zone. And so those... Um, those uh, ditches had cutthroat trout. They had coho in them. And I remember skating on the ditch, uh, and there were frozen sticklebacks frozen into the ice. And I looked down and go, wow, look at that. The three-spined sticklebacks. And they're frozen. Like, you know, you go to the gift shop, and uh, you've got like a little snowman frozen into a glass ball, and you hang it on your tree, and this is what it was like. And I, I have no idea. I know, I know that my dad had a fishing rod in our old shed. It was a steel rod. So this was 19, 1950s, 1960s. And uh, this fishing rod, it was useless. And it was a piece of junk. But I was just fascinated by it. And I think that kind of, um, that kind of thing just basically... Um, took me into a different um, sort of psychological level, right? You know, why is a, you know, why is a professional tennis player, you know, as good as he or she is? Because they are just, they, there's some psychological hardwiring that occurs at a very long, young age and they become good at it. And so um, mostly I think uh, one of the reasons that I was not interested in climbing the corporate ladder in government because I wanted to be out fishing. But I knew how to get an education if I wanted to do well in this particular profession. And so my friends were out on the Fraser River catching Harrison Jacks, you know, 1973. They're out there having these great days. 
and I'm sitting in math uh, in my first year of university calculus, and I'm going like, oh. my friends are catching fish. I'm sitting here. Those fish might disappear one of these days. I already kind of had a premonition that, you know, many of the runs that I knew when I was a young man or child uh, would essentially be gone by the time I got to, into my adulthood. And so I'm cl- closer to retirement. I'm a little bit choked because a lot of the runs of salmon that I used to fish have basically been shut down. Not just me. First Nations are severely curtailed. Uh, commercial fisheries are curtailed. Uh, marine sport, you know, we've just had this just basically shut down of these ecosystems. So anyways, um, I think I think somewhere in my um, youth, I think it was because I was such a, a terrible angler. Not a good angler, Okay. <laughs> I catch a lot of fish now because I, I, I can do it. But that's not because I'm particularly skilled. I'm just persistent about it. And so um, it irritated the daylights out of me that uh, I wasn't good at it. So major, you know, it's kind of like the tenant, he tries harder. And the golfer tries, the hockey player tries harder and harder to get good at it. And so um, that kind of looped back to me. I would, I'd be just happy to be on the bank catching fish. I like killing fish too, which is a bad thing. I like taking home salmon. I like eating them. I like smoking them. I like canning them, uh, turning them into sushi, whatever. I'm going to have a barbecue this afternoon with some friends, a, um, a hatchery produced, uh, better Chilliwack hatchery, um, Chinook salmon. Okay. I just like it. I just, just love it. So, um, my, uh, interest would rather have been out there in the water, but I knew how to have this educational background to be able to uh, help make decisions to protect my ability to go out there with the fishing pole sitting on the edge of the Fraser River. Mm-hmm. So I guess uh, when you, you know, why, you know, what is that core? Why do I like fish? Um, they just seem like a fascinating group of animals. You know, I just, I tell it to my students, you know, and they go, <laughs> well, you know, that's, Okay, Marvin, uh, you take your uh, sort of idiosyncrasy and, you know, we'll listen to you for a while. We'll get educated on a topic, A, B, or C, but then, uh, you know, we're going to go have the rest of our life. And, and I recognize that. I recognize that people, you know, not everybody can be passionate or interested in one or another thing. Um, Is there a favorite fish for you? Uh, oh, Dean yeah. talked a lot about. I think it's steelhead that are like prehist, like they're they're like dinosaurs. Um, no, I might have sturgeon. 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 Yeah. yeah. Uh yeah. Chinook salmon. Great, yeah. great big chinook. You know that that rod bent over and you know packing it back to the boat and taking it home and carefully filleting it and and then putting it on the barbecue or smoking it or canning it. Uh, these great big monsters that, you know, make your... Now, notwithstanding that, sturgeon get get to be a lot bigger. And uh, Dean Work, who's a, a fishing guide, very well-known fishing guide in the Fraser Valley, um, got me into an eight-footer uh, in a very heavy current the other day. My shoulder, I think, is still sore from that, fighting that big fish. But for whatever reason, Chinook salmon, those great big silver, gorgeous, yeah. early, the early runs, which we can't fish anymore, they've basically uh, fallen to bits in terms of their population numbers. That that would be my favorite. But I, any, any carp, you know, I'd be interested holding a carp, catching. And, and I don't really care, you know, I, I like angling, but I would just be as happy to gillnet them right. or pitchfork them or gaff them or snorkel and just look at them or catch and really, you know. 
I, I, I'm not a uh, a resource user um, wantonly. You know, I'm very careful about um, what, when I handle fish, uh, but I do like fish in my freezer. Uh, I enjoy eating them, uh, notwithstanding that I. I've had so many salmon in my life. I'm a little bit tired. I you know, like halibut bitter now, I think. But, but you know, I just, I don't know, they're just interesting animals. They just, um, and and there's no explanation for it. It's just, um, maybe it's a bit of a mental illness or something. No, it sounds like a really good thing that other people are missing out on, which is causing some sort of mental illness. But uh, what what is the relationship between killer whales? There's that, that uh, pod, I want to say, that are really interested in only eating Chinook salmon. Uh, I think it's the southern resident uh, killer whales in the Salish Sea, Gulf of Georgia, Puget Sound area. How does that happen? I don't know. Somehow or other, they were adapted, uh, you know, over the last probably... 10,000 or 100,000 years to eat Chinook salmon. So Puget Sound, um, uh, lower and upper Georgia Basin, you know, had, had always pre-European settlement and industrial fishing had had large numbers of Chinook salmon in, in addition to all the other species. And um, I think the pod or pods of whale whales, because Chinook, somebody asked me about that the other day, you know, I've heard stories of killer whales up in um, Vancouver Island, the Eve River, where I fly fish for pinks, pushing pinks right up against the shore and eating them, okay? Uh, and I've heard other folks uh, talk about sockeye. Chum, I think, are also, you know, chum can be big-bodied. They're the second largest of the five Pacific salmon. But Chinook salmon, historically, were in the Gulf of Georgia, basically 365 days of the year. So pink, sockeye, chum, gone. Cohort of smaller species, they only kind of uh, end up, they're smaller body species, they, they only, only end up um, being a reasonable size after about June of their last year. They grow very quickly. But Chinook, you know, historically you had big Chinook swimming around the Gulf of Georgia. Very nutritious package of food. You know, like me, I like, I like these great big silver, beautiful uh, you know, muscular animals. And so, um, in that context, I think, um, I think that's why you'd had this particular group of killer whales mm. uh, and killer whales are ubiquitous around the planet. You know, some of them eat mammals, you know, they'll, they'll chomp on a, yeah. on a seal or something. Right. But, um, for whatever reason it is in sort of the Southern Gulf of Georgia, Salish Sea, Puget Sound area, these guys uh, seem to have cottoned on to Chinook salmon. Right. Fish farms. What do we do about them? How did they come about? Uh, do you think that fish farms are um, all bad? Is there a place for them? How do they function? I just, there seems to be real concerns. I've spoken to Eddie Gardner, Dean Work, um, Carrie Lynn Victor. They've all talked about the problems with fish farms. How did we get here? Well, that's interesting because this is a lecture that I'm going to give this week about uh, fish production worldwide. So fish production worldwide post-World War II started to build up and then hit about uh, about uh, 80, 90 million tons. Okay. And the world population. So that's about the cap in world production. A bit under 100 million, depending on who you talk. Some say there's underreporting by China, but... Uh, somewhere around uh, 80 million tons. But we worldwide produce, uh, I'm going to say somewhere around uh, 
160 million tons. And that gap is taken up by aquaculture, both marine and freshwater. So China China has the largest aquaculture, um, uh, freshwater is the, the biggest. And so we, we almost can't live without fish farms generically, okay? But if we drill down to British Columbia and its salmon fish farms in southern British Columbia, so Clayquit Sound and uh, Upper Gulf of Georgia and uh, Nootka Sound and and uh, all of these Georgia Basin between the northern east coast of Vancouver Island and the mainland, the inlets and little bays and stuff like that, channels, very protected. And so from about the early 1990s, we went up sort of like that, and it kind of kind of is sort of leveled off now. And if you look at the number of coho, chinook, uh, steelhead, sockeye, and the relationship is fish farms this way, and the salmon and steelhead populations going in the in the sort of opposite direction, and the correlation is pretty tight. There's some natural experiments that are pretty, you know, again the, the multiple lines of evidence in my view, and my analytics are very different than most people's uh, uh, assessments. So. Uh, basically, they exploded. They exploded in British Columbia because uh, offshore money, a lot of Norwegian funding uh, coming in. And so uh, it became big business. Um, I know people who I would consider to be friends. There's absolutely no problem with fish farms. They have no influence on natural native populations. I don't believe that. And again, you know, this isn't the forum to really talk about it because I've gone through a lot of detail in terms of my analytics, uh, correlative detail, and um, essentially, um, you know, I'm convinced. And uh, But it's such a large business sector for a certain group of, um, you know, the economy of Columbia, that once they're in there, it's hard to wedge out. And that's kind of, that's kind of uh, sort of, a, I would say, an example of how, if you're going to do something, you know it's bad. You've got a pretty good idea that it's bad right from the beginning. Um, we always talk sustainable development and precautionary principle. Most of that is crap. You know, it sounds good on paper. It sounds good when you're talking uh, to the members of, uh, you know, the UN, you know, but reality is, is that, um, you know, Brundtland Commission and things like that, sustainable development, any development is probably negative. And and the really bad ones, uh, I think, include fish farms. And so uh, that's where we're at. And so there's a, some intense pressure, uh, some by First Nations. Now the First Nations communities support it because it provides employment up and down the coast into some communities that don't have a lot of economic opportunities. So you understand the, the pain that they may feel by having fish farms removed. But... You know, again, I, I believe that it is cultural genocide. I think that fish farms have basically obliterated, and yeah, First Nations communities still get fish under Section 35, uh, you know, rights and titles, a food, social, and ceremonial under the Constitution. But when there's... Um, nothing left of something, um, you know, uh, people change and they forget. And they forget these, you know, at a family perspective, me, 
my own family spent an enormous amount of time on the Fraser River catching sockeye and Chinook. Just wonderful times, wonderful family times. And I feel for First Nations communities, particularly some of the ones in the northern, you know, Chaco. So I worked on the court case uh, with uh, two First Nations, Stilat and Skyutes, um, on flows for sturgeon. And so the generations, and I had a student from uh, um, the Fort Fraser area, one of the First Nations last year. Um, when it's gone, then that continuity that uh, occurred since First Nations colonized the coast of British Columbia after the last ice age, 10,000 years. And the continuity of European communities that, you know, lived and breathed and uh, survived on the economics or the food provided, uh, the recreational stuff by me. I, I, I think uh, fish farms have essentially uh, been the result of a component of cultural genocide within the, these various communities, sport, recreational, First Nations, commercial, up and down the coast of British Columbia, because so many of these groups were tied to Fraser River salmon runs okay so i i think it's a i think it's a terrible thing i think i think we do not understand 100 years from now when maybe we figured out what the damage was by fish farms to a family living on the skeetson reserve you know on the thompson river or uh somebody who lives uh uh in the chilco area um I, I, you know, this this is fish farms are a horrible, horrible thing to the social network of indigenous and non-indigenous communities in British Columbia. I believe. Wow, that is very well articulated. What are the effects for fish? You mentioned fish lice. What problems do they they create? It sounds like. There's these locations um, where they're breeding fish and trying to grow them, but they're not well. Carrie Lynn Victor described some that that swim into the same thing again and again and again, and don't they're not like intelligent to the way you expect other fish to yeah, behave. You're referring to the fish in the inside the pens. Yeah. Well, uh, British Columbia has um, pretty well adopted the fish farming industry has adopted. Atlantic salmon as its uh, main species of, of um, culture. And you know, I know a bit about fish culture because uh, uh, at one point I was connected to the, to the Freshwater Fisher Society and the hatchery system at a personal level. And so, you know, if I know the fish cultures. Uh, I know the DFO um, hatchery guys. A lot of my students work in hatcheries. So I know a little bit about sort of the genetics and behavior and stuff like that. Uh, you know, there, there were these real fears early on in the 1990s, and I heard the stories. Cause I, you know, there was a, some fight put up by provincial in particular, not so much federal only, but provincial uh, fisheries managers, so mostly sport fishing, that Atlantic salmon were going to escape, they were going to colonize streams, they were going to outcompete the native stocks, um... And then there was the issue of disease, both, um, you know, things like viral and bacterial. But the one that I think, okay, and when I say fish farms, I, I think are deleterious. I'm looking at sort of the macro level, the correlative level, not down. Even though I, I did 
review one of the papers, one of my um, reviews for the Cohen Commission was on disease and fish farms. Um, I kind of get a sense that the collapse is tied to sea lice. It just seems to me sea lice makes the most sense. And I'm really careful, very cautious, very conservative about my statements. But, you know, over the last uh, 10 or so years, 15 years that I've been working on this issue, I'm absolutely convinced that um, fish farms are the most deleterious. Since the Hell's Gate disaster in around 1913, that basically when the the railroad uh, construction blasted a bunch of rock at Hell's Gate, more or less blocked salmon runs in the upper freezer. I think fish farms have been the the biggest catastrophic collapse, notwithstanding, you know, the development, uh, Roberts Bank and the estuary, um, you know, a bunch of other things. I think that, uh, you know, there's this sort of death by a thousand cuts, um, more people putting in inputs into our Fraser River sewage-wise, uh, you know, again, forest practices, which are more or less figured out, uh, I still believe, and and it is my opinion, that fish farms have been far by far the most catastrophic effect to British Columbia salmonid ecosystems. Heck, you know, Port Alberni and um, the uh, sockeye runs, the coho runs, the chinook runs, some of them hatchery, some of them wild. Uh, Barkley Sound is almost no... No uh, fish farms. Boom. Those runs have maintained stability. They vary. You know, what people don't seem to understand is natural semi-decadal or decadal oscillations. There's there's El Nino, La Nina effects, and all sorts of uh, open uh, ocean effects that are natural, that are large cycles over time. Big variations between the peaks and the bottoms of the troughs. Notwithstanding that, uh Berkeley Sound uh, runs of sock as an example have maintained relatively stable steelhead steelhead has been a bit of a problem the last few years in the Berkeley Sound run Stamp River but for the most part it stayed very stable uh, things like Dean River steelhead as an example you can see even the Skeena that has had some problems the last few years for the most part if you look at the trajectory of most runs in the Fraser versus Skeena Skeena has more or less stayed relatively stable. And it's easy for people to, oh, climate change. You know, I, I, I really don't like, you know, climate change, climate change. Yeah, climate change has uh, almost certainly deleterious impacts that we don't understand that will, you know, we haven't even scrapped my life. I'll be long gone before we understand the issues of climate change. Um, some of the big runs in Alaska are are being touted as being, uh, beneficiaries of climate change, warmer waters, more productivity. But hey, little old uh, runs in Columbia River at the very south end of the range, you know, exploded this year, way higher than. So we had Alaska this year at 90 million or 80 million. Um, uh, Columbia River sockeye runs at 700,000, uh, unprecedented in modern times, 93.5. And Fraser River watershed is boom. You know, the most iconic uh, piece of British Columbia um, landscape and water ecosystem and human, you know, First Nations communities, commercial fishermen, sport fishermen, all a whole gambit 
and the ecosystem um, features, you know, bears eat salmon, seagulls eat salmon, bears crap in the bush after they've eaten salmon, that fertilizes riparian areas. You know, this, this, the marine-derived nutrients, the nitrogen and phosphorus that historically, particularly pre-European, had been brought back onto the landscape and essentially fertilized um, the landscape around these huge salmon rivers, um, you know, it's gone. It's just disappeared. It's just like, it's phenomenal. And then we say, well, oh, well, we can develop these islands in, and on the Fraser River, heart of the Fraser between Hope and Mission, you know, just a bunch of islands. Wait a sec here. 99.999% of the salmon runs go through there. A lot of the runs are beneficially affected when the water comes up and floods the big islands. Um, they're positively affected. Oh, we're going to develop them. Oh, it's no problem. We'll get a, we'll get a, uh, a bio environmental biology. Oh, well, we'll put a circle around this little patch of water and okay, it'll, it'll be okay. It's not, you know, but overarching all of these other impacts, in my view, um, the salmon farming industry, in British Columbia is by far the most deleterious. What are um, like the the things that cause harm to them? What do sea lice do to the salmon that cause such problems? Well, sea lice are essentially uh, an ectoparasite, and they attach. So, pink salmon might be that big, and the sea lice might be that long, and it attaches to the side of the body of the fish. Basically, bores a hole into the side of the fish and sucks the juices out. Right. Even so it's like a leech. It's almost like a leech. It's not. It's not in that in the same taxonomic yeah. category. But yeah, it's like a leech. It just attaches and sucks the juices out of uh, out of the baby salmon. And um, so you know these fish are going through osmoregulatory transformations. So what is, uh, what is that? Essentially, uh, fish in freshwater, um, because. Um, because uh, the cells within the body of the fish, uh, the tissues, the muscles, uh, have more salt. Water tries to go in in fresh water because it's trying to create an osmotic balance. So the kidneys are working overtime to push fresh water out of a wow. out of a fish. When they go into marine environments, backwards because the marine environment is so salty. Uh, in effect, the um, uh, fish has to conserve water. And it has to push salt out because it's constantly, it's got salt cells and, uh, and that actually take salt out of the water that fish are being, is being absorbed through the gut or through the skin. And it has to push salt out and it has to conserve water. So you bore a great big hole in the side of a, a little baby salmon because your, your parasite is, your parasite's that long and your salmon's that long and you poke a bunch of holes in it. It essentially is like a, like taking a, pinned to a uh, water balloon and you're pricking it and all of a sudden you know essentially um, you got all that leakage and so that that's that's kind of a layperson's uh, yeah. attempt or a layperson type of description of what happens is physiologically I'm sure it's a lot more complicated than that but that's my sort of um, layperson explanation brilliant the Cohen Commission we've talked about it briefly here and there when did this come about um, and what was it like to be involved? Do you have hope that commissions like this push us slowly in a better direction? Well, I was part of the Cohen Commission on, on a number of different levels. 
So, for example, um, I was hired to review uh, habitat issues, uh, disease issues. And there was another report, another um, subject that I reviewed. Uh, and I was also asked by the Beast Wildlife Federation to talk about um, what I thought was a really critical issue, just talk, and I felt fish farm. So I went and put together this sort of prototype analytics and um, for some reason or other, my, the mentor, the guy by the name of Bill Otway, who was quite a uh, strong personality, passed away about that time. And so my presentation never made the, on what I felt, you know, the correlative analysis, uh, never made the picture. Um, and I testified, testified actually in um, 2011. And I know it's 2011 because that was the, that was during the uh, Stanley Cup riots. So uh, my last day testifying in in court uh, in front of uh, Judge Cohen, uh, you could hear the guys uh, with their drums and, you know, prior to the hockey game uh, making a noise. And so we're sitting there testifying and down on George and Granville Street, the crowds were coming in for the game. So that, that was, that really impressed me um, and that's why I can remember that was the, the date. So there was a lot of preparation up to that point and I had reviewed a number of different topics but but we had had a number of collapses of soccer like what's new in the Fraser River right <laughs> and so it was weird that in 2010 we had this massive run you know sort of a modern record and I have my sort of suspicions about that what why it happened but in any event um, um the Cohen Commission, I think, was sort of well-meaning, but I don't know that it necessarily really... It seemed to be run more by lawyers than it was run by hardcore scientists, notwithstanding the fact that there were some really good scientists that provided input. But the core question, I think the core question in everybody's mind was, is it fish farms? And that was never answered. And in fact, you know, there's no smoking gun was the statement, I think that the Cohen Commission failed to really address the question that was in everybody's mind, you know, is it fish farms or not? And so I don't want to step on too many feet because some of the scientists involved, I know, you know, I know at a personal level, but uh, if I was running it, which there's no chance that I would have, I would have wanted to put a lot more effort into asking and trying to answer that question. And so um, following from that, there were a bunch of recommendations and, you know, probably some of the stuff that I worked on, you know, there's a whole list of them. I forget what the number, you know, fish farms out by 2025. Well, we're just about at 2025. Joyce Marie, who was a minister up until last week, uh, fisheries minister up until last week, when she stepped down due to health reasons. Um, was that a loss? I think it was a loss. But there's a whole back history. Joyce Murray is a British Columbian. Uh, she's a natural resource person. Her background is in uh, forestry, tree planting. And um, I think she was actually the minister when I was removed from government in 2003. I think she was my boss, actually. Uh, in any event, um, I had been asked by the federal government to give presentations. It actually goes back um, to the days of the Pacific Fisheries Resource Conservation Council in uh, the late 90s. And I think that 
John Fraser was the chair of that. He was a minister of fisheries and he was speaker of the house at one point. And um, I think that was another collapse in Sockeye. You know, the, we were 24 hours or 48 hours from losing uh, because there was some screw up in assessment of Sockeye numbers. So I wrote a bunch of habitat reports for the Pacific Fisheries Resource Conservation Council. So I've been advising DFO and the senior fisheries uh, folks for quite a few years. Um, and then, uh, so I think I had eight reports, eight habitat reports. And then moving forward to um, standing committee, uh, fisheries and oceans, Ottawa, flew to Ottawa once uh, on Fraser gravel removal. And then uh, another time, uh, 2021, 20, on um, Habitat generally, on to the Standing Committee. And then Joyce Murray's folks called me up in January, so I talked to her face-to-face -face over uh, the Internet in January 17th. And then again, uh, took her out on the Fraser River in July of this year, 2022. And uh, I think... You know, um, the one thing about Joyce is that she told us she wanted to be effective. She wanted to be effective. And I got a sense that she was really being honest with me. And, um, you know, I've talked to MLAs and members of parliament and city council over the years. You know, and some of them, you can tell their eyes glaze over very quickly. Yeah. And I got a sense that. Uh, Joyce was a stage of her life and her career where she wasn't prepared to stand down on things that she thought she could be effective at. It was time to spend the political capital. Yep. 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 So she, she didn't have a 20 year political career ahead of her at 68. I think she was 68 when she stepped down. Well, you know, Donald Trump will go till the end of time, I guess. And Joe Biden will go to the end of time. And Putin, you know, all these guys, you know, they should have, you know, and I have a, my brother-in-law says, you know, we need to turn these decisions over to the younger generation. And I agree with that. Although I think, you know, in my career, I think the, the, the wisdom, I think certain cultures, maybe the Japanese culture or uh, Chinese culture, value the wisdom of yeah. uh, older people. I think some of the First Nations communities value the wisdom of older people a lot more than, say, uh, modern European and uh, North American societies. Um, and so uh, I think Joyce Murray had a level of wisdom or has a level of wisdom that um, was sort of uncommon uh, amongst a lot of members of parliament and uh, MLAs, maybe local council members. And so I was basically sh shocked. <laughs> you know, I was shocked when she, uh, uh, you know, like, oh, now we have to train up a new minister again, like, you know, explain it all to them, why this is important, why that is important. So that, it, it, going back to your question about Joyce, I think um, 
I think it was really kind of disappointing to see her have to step down. Yeah. There's a theme arising from my understanding outside of government, never having worked with them, because Lee Harding described something very similar to you, which was around ATVs in the north. Um, apparently, they will like clear out a bunch of trees so people can go ATVing. And then the smoothing of the snow due to the ATVs makes it very easy for wolves to get around even sure. faster. Yeah. And his argument is... If we reduced this or if we limited their ability to roam free, then caribou would be able to get around and not have to stress about being cut off by wolves who can now move at a faster pace because of what we're doing. And the BC government at the time basically said, we're not interested in that because it's such a good business. They're they're bringing in such revenue and it sort of overlaps with your finding of these fish farms. They're bringing in revenue, creating jobs. And so it's like we're a little bit addicted to the opportunities economically and employment-wise that they bring in for our community members, that it's hard to to get off of it. It's hard to say, okay, we're going to invest in this because there's consequences long-term for our society. Yeah, well, um, ask the Soda Creek band whether they like being constrained from the early Seward Sockeye or the Stilatin band or a uh, commercial Gillnetter in the lower Fraser River that's been fishing for three or four generations, or a sport um, marina in uh, Pender Harbor that had, you know, uh, docks and boats, rentals and motels, and uh, you know, and and uh, it's easy to see this concentrated value, uh, you know, fish farm A, fish farm B, uh, making, you know. $10 million per farm or 10, you know, what I, I don't know the economics of it, yeah. the, 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 the large amount of money. But when you see the cultural and social diversity being lost from, you know, Stewart Lake and uh, up at McBride and through the, um, you know, my friends uh, in the Shushwap uh, drainage, uh, my First Nations friends um, that live, uh, you know, uh, at Adams Lake and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, what happened for 10,000 years is gone. You know, the the um, negative externalities um, from an economic perspective, and I'm not an economist, but the negative externalities seem to me intuitively, when you take all these little spots of social and um, social capital and economic capital, you know, First Nations communities, you know, um, derived um, food sources, they derived income, they derived, you know, over the last 10,000 years from these, these runs of fish. And then all of a sudden, that money is concentrated in a few little fish farms scattered on Vancouver Island and it's being piped to Norway because these are these companies are owned by the Norwegians, you know. And, and yeah, there's there's local um, local uh, businesses and uh, employment. Um, I just think it's a tragedy. I think it's I think it's an absolute um, tragedy to the ninety two plus or minus uh, First Nations communities up and down the Fraser. The First Nations communities from Port Hardy right down to, um, uh, you know, down in the Nooksack that would have gone into marine waters. Um, 
uh, the folk, folks around the um, Orcas Islands, both um, First Nations and otherwise, they can't do it anymore. You know, as a kid, you'd go out uh, on the ferry from, from Horseshoe Bay to Vancouver Island, the fleet of little boats fishing coho and Chinook, you know, like the, uh, the Vancouver Sun Fishing Derby. You know, you know, every summer, you know, whatever it was, August 1st or whatever, Sun Salmon Derby. And, you know, the same guys would win every year. And, you know, the whole <laughs> golf, it's all disappeared. It's just gone. It's just, it's just absolutely, well, no, it's, you know, it's logging. It's urbanization. Oh, it's, um, it's climate. You know, it's, it's all crap. You know, the one, the one defining feature that really, I believe, really, and, yeah, maybe seals are an issue with, with regards to predation of uh, and Co. Or, or some of the other species, large bodies. But but we've had species after species, population after population, and I and I just can't get my head around it being anything other than that one hot spot. Um, do we have to fix urban stream issues? You know, riparian air. Protection regulation, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, forest practices code, you know, um, FERPA, it's now called yeah. FERPA. Uh, there's probably some glitches. Yeah, I can, you know, I can show you some bad logging practices. But the, the number one issue to me keeps coming back to this really bad hotspot that occurs in uh, sensitive areas of small doubt migration. So would you get rid of all of them? What is, if you had a magic wand and we could bypass the bureaucracy, we could accomplish something um, in regards to fish farms, what would that look like? Well, you know, I, I was, again, tightly uh, linked into the fish culture industry uh, for about uh, 16 years of my life. It helped pay off uh, part of my mortgage, so to speak. And so, you know, I know, you know, the economics are not, you know, it's not easy, for example, to do land-based fish farming. If it was that easy in British Columbia, you know, it'd be a fish farm on every, you know, we would convert our fields out here in East Chilliwack or out on the Sumas lake bed or into fish farms, you know. And, and in some cases, we are turning those agricultural lands into greenhouses. You know, we're growing tomatoes, we're growing uh, peppers and all marijuana even you know we, you know we we can adapt but uh this idea intuitively to me that we just take these fish farms out of the water and put them onto land-based areas the economics don't seem to me it seems to me that very rarely do you find an area where there's enough fresh water i think in florida of all places there's uh, fish farms, I think salmon or sturgeon fish farms, because the hole under the ground is a huge aquifer, so it's a lot of cheap, right. a lot of cheap, easy water um, to grow fish. But you got to get rid of waste. You know, when you have a hatchery, you can only put so many fish in. Oxygen's an issue. Um, getting rid of waste. So having a, a big net, kind of like a like a drawstring purse, suspended by floats, currents wash away. All the deleterious, um, you know, the um, ammonia wastes, um, fish poop um, brings in fresh water uh, for oxygenation. So um, when you have large numbers of fish concentrated in an area, uh, the biological oxygen man is pretty high. Yeah, I think that one of the big challenges we're in right now is we don't know what to do. And it feels like people 
are going to be unable to act if they don't have that context. And it's tough to get that social community, that team together to really explain that to the general public. Um, it seems like the average person doesn't know, and so they get um, part information, and we just want things to be better for us. And so it's hard for us to kind of understand and be sympathetic to the challenges of other ecosystems going on around us. But you're also making a really good point about climate change. One of the challenges around the recent floods that we had, the atmospheric ri river, was we immediately blamed it on climate change. And there was an yeah. incentive for politicians to blame it on that, rather than the level one out of level four or five dike um, that all of them were, were not maintained, but of course it's climate change. And as much as there's no disagreement for me that we are changing the climate, it seems like it's become just a tool, just a lip service thing to offset any accountability for how to approach things and improve things. Um, and I'm just interested in your thoughts on that. Well, I, I'd just like to tie up the ends though on the fish farming. There are ways, um, you can have offshore take great big massive basically oil rig type um, structures go offshore where the juveniles aren't migrating and um, have your farms out there very costly but the Scandinavians seem to be doing okay on trying that uh, and then uh, I've got a student uh, in the engineering section of our um, resource section at BCIT who's doing a capstone study on uh, basically enclosed within the marine environment fish pans so it doesn't just have straight throw, flow through so you would condition the water you basically i guess kill and, I, and i'm interested in reading what you have to say but you kill all the bad bugs that are coming out of the effluent you're capturing right. the sewage essentially the fish poop and nitrates uh, ammonia uh before it gets out so there are some technologies that might be available to mitigate some of this stuff but you know we're still it's not going to, you know, doesn't help somebody who's somebody who is a commercial fisherman who took out a mortgage on his house to buy a bunch of nets for 2022, thinking there was going to be 10 million fish on the Fraser River. Maybe he's bankrupt now. There's a First Nations community somewhere uh, up by Yale that didn't get as many fish as they thought they were because all of a sudden, uh, you know, the dry rack, I think there's a little dry rack fishery, which is really important to certain um, uh, Fraser Canyon fishing um, First Nations. But, you know, and, and actually those early runs did come back stronger than, but it's, it's early Stewart's much smaller run than, um, than the rest of the Fraser. But, yeah, you know, you loop, you loop out of things like atmospheric rivers in, uh, and the damage it caused. Well, you know, I, I sat... On some of the, um, well, I was on the Veda River um, Floodway Committee uh, when I was with Mr. Environment back in the day. So all the diking arrangement, I was looking at it from a fish perspective. Uh, our little group in Chilliwack, the gravel stewardship group, um, dealt with freight. We actually helped shut down gravel removal for two cycles. So they're out there right today as we talk, pulling a bunch of gravel out because when you get a great big flood, you end up pushing a lot of gravel from the upper part of the watershed into the dikes. We've constrained it. This, you know, We're all protected here where we're sitting right now by these massive dikes on the Vetter and Vetter Canal. 
And so these atmospheric rivers and climate change are looping into the decisions that we make here in our development, okay? And you're right, because when I was sitting there back in the 1990s and uh, dike engineers were going, oh, I know that. That Sumas River Dyke, oh, very good. Oh, that Sumas, you know, this is this goes back 25 years now. You know, that Sumas River, one of these days, you know, and all these things are statistical probabilities. So the um, hydrologists have these sort of fancy curves where they predict how often a flood of this magnitude will occur. It's a 1 in 100 or 1 in 200 or 1 in 500 year flood. And climate change seems to have been flipping this thing around. But yeah, I'm not going to name names, but certain mayors and their uh, administration should have said, hey, that's Sumas Dyke there, uh, you know, by number number three road should have been upgraded. And all of a sudden, you know, these farmers are being wiped out. So climate change, I think, in the context of fish and ecosystems um, are, are an easy punching bag because nobody... Everybody on the planet is tied to the resolution of that, or it's everybody on the planet is tied to the increase of climate change. And so it's easy to point to, you know, the other guy, and it's very difficult to um, say, well, you know, I'm the culprit. You know, I am the culprit, uh, but what are you going to do about it? What am I going to do? Oh, it's too overwhelming for me. I'll buy another four-wheel drive because I got enough money to do that, okay? Oh, but I'll buy an electric one, notwithstanding the fact that the electricity might have actually been produced by a cogen plant that burns gas or coil or oil or whatever to produce that electricity. You know, simply because you plug a Tesla into the wall <clears throat> doesn't mean that the, that the electricity that you're putting into your battery wasn't produced by uh, a carbon-based fuel, you know, Europe's, China, you know, these guys don't have these steep, large mountain streams that we have here in British Columbia or in Scandinavia, you know, the central part of Europe. So they're running on nuclear and they're running on coal and they're running on gas. Yeah. Um, you know, when I traveled through, through uh, uh, Western Europe in 20... Western, Western Central Europe in, in 2017, I was shocked by the number of windmills, shocked by the number of, you know, guys got a little patch of, little triangle of land between the road and the highway. And um, there's a there's a whole series of solar panels. I'm going, wow, that's, you know, and then the anti-solar panel guys are, ah, but look at how much earth you had to rip up to get the, you know, the elemental materials to build you know so it's it's this argument that goes beyond beyond us and so i think um i think you have to have it at a at a mega political level and certain um political trends right now want government to stay away you know they, they're small government no government interference uh you know i'm some uh hillbilly in the backwoods of Idaho, I don't want anybody telling me that I can't use a gas guzzler. I don't want anybody to tell me that I got to use a um, solar panel, uh, you know. And so I, I really don't know what the answer is. You know, at a smaller level, you know, we in British Columbia can say at a political level, shut down the fish farms. 
Okay. Um, and so part of the part of the Cohen Commission, I put together a presentation, very correlative analysis, and I said, look at these are the relationships. Wherever fish are passing through fish farms, you're getting these collapses. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but this this body of evidence. Oh yeah, Marvin, that's right. Okay, pat you on the head, go away. So in about 2016, I was asked by um, somebody at the David Suzuki Foundation, John Waring, used to be a biologist there, I want you to give this presentation to the provincial minister of fisheries uh, panel on fisheries. Uh, go away. Nobody listened to the. No, no, no. We'll pay you. We'll pay you. I said, we've got a lot of upgrading to do. We'll pay you. So I got a little bit of money. So it was nice. Put it up. Gave it to a whole room, First Nations, government bureaucrats, uh, scientists, you know, inside and out of academia and government. Oh, that's really, wow, that's interesting. Wow, yeah. Wow, I think you got a point there. Pat you on the head, go away. <laughs> you know, so I gave it to a few few public groups. Oh, oh that's terrible. That's terrible. Yeah, we got to do something about that. Pat you on the head, go away. <laughs> and so I've given it to a few members of parliament and uh, a few MLAs and stuff. Oh, oh we got to do something about this. Uh, pat you on the head, go away. So, you know, uh, that's a small issue. Climate change. Now, uh, I saw something the other day that said the ozone layer, you can see the ozone, you know, the hole in the ozone layer, the whatever, the thickness, however they measure, is actually recovering from, you know, the, the um, CFCs or whatever, whatever they, they were called and all this other stuff. Uh, and so we're actually getting some recovery, you know, the, all the aerosols that we used to spray with the hairspray. And so, um, you know, at a, at a macro level, we can resolve some of these issues, I think. The other thing is technology. Technology is bad because we um, use it to destroy things. We use it to create wars. We, we've got missiles in Ukraine that are you know, dropping on people's heads. But it can also be used for good. But the question is, this is like, kind of like an arms race. You know, is technology, um, you know, is fusion going to come along? We're going to figure it out so we'll have unlimited cheap, clean, or fission going to be the, you know, we're still going to be basically polluting the world with nuclear waste. I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't have a crystal ball to be able to say, but, you know, um, I've got friends and relatives, climate change, just a hoax, you know, and, and all this kind of, in my own world, at relatively short data sets, you know, under 150 years, I can see change, like in in my world of hydrology and uh, things that have changed. So um, you know, I have no um, I have no issues with accepting climate change. You know, when you, and when you hear you know chunks of uh, Greenland floating off and increasing the ocean um, levels by you know ten inches or a foot or whatever whatever the number was. And I just read an article uh, yesterday, I think, on uh, some um, community in Louisiana that had been around since the French, so it was First Nations, um, um, French uh, community off the mouth of Mississippi, I think, 
that, you know, they're, <laughs> they had this big set of islands or wetlands, you know, farming community that, and, it, and there's just this tiny little strip left because ocean levels uh, have come up. New Zealand, you know, I spent time on a sabbatical in 2019 in New Zealand and um, climate change is a real big deal to these guys because, you know, they have so much coastline and they have, they, they're seeing their coastline wash, you know, wash away, you know, uh, and they're going like, holy crap, you know, this, we're going to have, so First Nations community down in uh, New Zealand and Maori people and Pacific Islanders, you know, largest Pacific Island community in the South Pacific, uh, not including Maori, plus the Maori community is very um, um, strongly uh, economically and politically part of the New Zealand community. And uh, some of their, you know, their historic lands are being basically, and, and it's, it's not every day. It's just that when you get an above average flood or a big storm, all of a sudden that had been dry for, you know, since time immemorial, all of a sudden it has water lapping into it. So, you know, uh, I, I, and again, it goes back to, you know, 8 billion people. On the planet. If we lost 2 or 3 billion because of a meteor or, or a nuclear war or whatever, it only sets us back, you know, a generation or so. You know, when you look at the, um, I think it was 1800s, we had our first billion in the 1800s. So, the, you know, this geometric progression of numbers of people. So, um, not sure, really not sure how that one's going to be grappled with. I'm too, too much of a small speck on the, on the spectrum of natural resource management and, um, uh, resource education, natural resource education, to come to grips with that one. Yeah, I guess I come down on a different side. I hope that the expansion, if we're at eight billion, it means more. Um, and people don't always agree with him, but more Elon Musk's, more people who are able to think. Um, what if we were to extract resources on an, on a meteorite or something? Yeah. Like that all seems so beyond comprehension, but so did having a phone in your pocket 50 years ago and having it do all the things it does today. I remember, I don't know if you ever saw Spy Kids, but the idea of the watch that they, oh, yeah. the, the, the thing that they have on their watch, um, now our watches do far more than even that show could have comprehended. Yeah. And I hope that our, like that is something and you kind of talked about it the idea that technology can be a bad which is uh, nuclear war but then it can be the potential of good which is like nuclear energy and and yeah. fission and and these paths that are potentials that we're not there yet but yeah. the hope is that we as a collective eight billion of us can figure out the solution to that and the challenge we always <laughs> seem to have is you look at something like World War Two, World War One, dark periods in the 20th century, yet a, a time where a lot of innovation took place. Um, innovation that you see on smaller scales when when you're not being tested, when there isn't an investment in R&D on how to figure out how problems kind of get solved. Um, but I want to ask specifically about gravel in water. Um, Dean talked about, a lot of people talk about how dirty the Fraser looks, and he talks about how 
a lot of that is a misunderstanding of, of how that river functions. Um, but there are concerns around the amount of gravel we put in there. Uh, I had Carrie Lynn Victor on. She's one of the people near Shiam that was working to restore natural ecosystems to that area because we just pour in more gravel, then it disintegrates into sand, and then it gets darker and harder to breathe. Can you explain how gravel impacts the Fraser River? Oh, the Fraser River is a sediment-laden river. Its ecosystem is adapted to being a dirty river, to being a muddy river, and to being a a sediment-laden river. Sediment is absolutely critical. The fine sediments and the coarser sediments are absolutely critical to the functioning of that river. People should not be touching gravel. They should not be removing gravel. They should not be, uh, they should be letting the river undergo its, its normal fluvial processes. Um, uh, by having the river, uh, um, do its own thing, um, the, the largest salmon run in British Columbia, uh, single salmon run in British Columbia is actually between Hope and, and Mission. And that's the pink salmon run. Back in the late nineties, it was, probably around 10 million fish. It's it's declined precipitously since then. But it's a big gravel-bedded river, mostly, from Hope going down to Mission, and then it turns into a sand-bedded river. And so... um, from, I got to get my numbers straight here, because I work very much on gravel issues and sediment issues, uh, both in the lower river. So I was part of the Dredge Management Advisory Committee, which has been disbanded, was under the Fraser River Estuary Management Plan, FREMP. And uh, the gravel issues, I was the, basically the biologist for British Columbia on gravel removal issues. There was this sort of big thing, oh, we got to get gravel out, we got to, river's flooding, it's gonna over, we're going to overtop the dikes, there's vast amounts, there's not vast amounts of gravel. We know that from very detailed um, assessments, okay? So uh, I think there's something something around 20 million tons of fine sediment that mostly goes... So these are coming off of glaciers in uh, Mount Robson. Um, the Chaco system, um, uh, the Chilco system, uh, you name it. You know, some of some of them are have lakes uh, intercepting fine sediments, but a lot of that fine material, about twenty million tons of it, comes down every. It's more in some years, less in other years, and so that mostly goes out the Strait of George. So the, there's um, nutrients and uh, minerals and all sorts of really important stuff that are sort of associated with that sediment pulse. And then there's a smaller amount that basically hops along the bottom. Uh, some, some, sometimes it's sediment. So that's coarser sand uh, up to two millimeters. So um, the number's 0.011 or 2.2 millimeters to 2 millimeters. I forget what exactly. But anyways, there's that second layer of sediment um, grouping that mostly doesn't stay in eastern Fraser Valley. Now, that doesn't mean like the top of these islands, you know, out here uh, in East Chilliwack where the Fraser used to flood in and bring all these rich nutrients and sediments to create that beautiful soil out at Rosedale, um, Seabird Island, all all that rich agricultural land. Um, so the, the fine stuff, the really finest stuff would deposit, but mostly go out to the Gulf of Georgia, Salish Sea. Uh, the rest of it would, from Mission down to 
Richmond essentially basically, and that's how that was how the delta was formed uh, in the lower part around the Richmond area, this coarser sand. And then the really coarser material, the gravel, the gravel and cobbles, uh, mm-hmm. of which people seem to think there's just an unlimited amount. There's not. The, the fluvial geomorphic uh, measurements of the change in sediment between between Hope and Mission is relatively tiny. So in other words, in terms of changing dike profiles, um, so the water... In, during flood period is relatively small. We know that from very, very explicit, and very detailed modeling exercises, which, you know, was done about, I'll say, a little bit more than 15 years ago, but I don't think it's changed much since. Things don't change that uh, much. But pink salmon spawn in the Fraser uh, as a function of every year spring freshet uh, revitalizing that gravel, it kind of moves it around a bit, washes out material, and so that by the end of the by the end of the summer, there's these big, huge beds of gravel that pink salmon just absolutely love, and so pinks love these more or less unstable gravel uh, habitat features, like the area between Hope and Mission, because every year the Fraser kind of washes it clean. And a bunch, bunch of material comes in later on in the early spring, but then the big floods kind of wash it out again. So um, that that really, these, these dynamic um, changes, the islands that are eroding away, the new islands that form, um, the big back channels that Fraser River sturgeon spawn in, most, most of the spawning between Mission and Hope by sturgeon. So 19... 19- 99, I had a company called Limnotech that did a bunch of work and found sturgeon eggs. First time we'd ever found sturgeon eggs, and they were pretty well always in back channels. Main stem, I think the gravel was moving around too much, so that was good for pink salmon, but but the big back channels that is more stable, clean gravel, and so the big flood freshets would wash that gravel clean by the end of the freshet, Sturgeon spawn in springtime. The eggs are negatively buoyant. They go to the bottom. They stick. Unlike salmon who dig their eggs into gravel, sturgeon stick on top. So they need these great big, broad swaths of gravel that are clean, fairly coarse. So, you know, uh, us interfering with the um, with the shape and morphology. My personal view: leave it alone. Let the the rivers powerful enough. Stay as far away from it as you can. Maintain the vegetations. The big islands like Hurling Island, Carrier Gill Island, Strawberry Island, Minto Island. All of those we need to draw a red circle around, and we need to more or less stay away from them. Let them do their own thing because because a Fraser recreates habitat every year. And when we part, start putting berms and dikes and riprap banks, it basically disrupts those processes. You were a part of a documentary called The Heart of the Fraser. Yeah. Uh, it starts to land on exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Can you tell us about that documentary, how it came about, what it's about? Well, um, The Heart of the Fraser is a term that was coined somewhere, I think, in the late 1990s. And it was to kind of describe this 
unique. I don't know if there's any other gravel bedded stream that have salmonids that are that is not in an estuary. Columbia has a little bit of that, and probably the Skeena, but there's probably parts of um, the Amur River or some of the big Russian rivers. But you know, for the size of it, this this little chunk that's kind of stuck up, you know, it's stuck about a hundred kilometers from salt water, and has all this myriad of broken up channels and islands, and so that heart of the Fraser was a term that was created to kind of describe it, you know. Uh, the Stalo people uh, maybe have a different term for it. I think uh, Eddie Gardner has another name for it in the Stalo, uh, one of the Stalo languages. And so um, <clears throat> people started to recognize, hey, this is something different, something unique. This is something pretty special. So downtown Chilliwack used to flood many years before all the dikes went in. So that would have been part of that heart of the Fraser ecosystem. But, of course, we've got the big dikes, um, you know, on uh, um, out by uh, Island 22, uh, down by Cartmel Road. We've got, the you know, big dikes up at Rosedale. And so that those areas that would have, you know, Bell Slough and Camp Slough and Hope Slough, all those areas would have been, Hope Slough is probably a big sturgeon spawning habitat. You know, when you look at the more cross-sectional morphology of it, um, you know, it was a big channel. Apparently, First Nations used to use it. You know, don't have to go up the main channel. You use it as a highway to canoe up and down, so it's a good transportation route. So I kind of understand that. So uh, people started to um, uh, figure out, hey, this is something special. I don't think they really figured out how special it is. But a colleague of mine uh, by the name of Mark Angelo started to promote it and he, he and I wrote a report for the Pacific Fisheries Resource Conservation Council on the heart of the Fraser and there was sort of a sister report on the impact of the um, impact of farming community farming on uh, Eastern Fraser Valley which is basically you know much of it is heart of the Fraser and then over time it got a, a more and more kind of um, profile media started to take up on it and then um so Mark was the director of the fisheries or of the uh, Rivers Institute at BCIT, and then a colleague by the name of Dr. Ken Ashley became the um, became the director, <clears throat> and he was able to get some funding to be able to essentially um, uh, do a f- documentary on it, and so you know I helped the filmmakers. I guess I was sort of on the ground person who. Told, told him about this and told him about that. Dean work was involved in it as well because he's very much a Fraser River person. Grew up in the eastern Fraser Valley, just out on the Vetter River. Um, so I was East Chilliwack uh, on Banford Road. Dean was Vetter River, and um, so a bunch of people collabor- uh, collaborated together to get this documentary together. And I think it's a really good documentary. And um, it's one of three documentaries. There's the Soul of the Fraser, which is the estuary. Part of the Fraser is our area up here in the Chilliwack Agassiz uh, Mission Area. And then there's another documentary that's going to be put together for the Nechaco as well. Interesting. So it's available now, if I'm not mistaken, right? They did their premiere? The Heart of the Fraser? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's up and running. In fact, uh, anybody who talks to Dr. Ashley at the Rivers Institute can probably get a viewing. And there was there have been quite a few view, viewings around. So 2019, when I was down in New Zealand, it was first 
viewed and I've given it to my students, I think once or twice. And, um, why isn't it more readily available? Uh, you'll have to ask Dr. Okay. Ashley about that. We did give it uh, just over here in the high school in uh, Vitter Crossing. So I was involved in that. And uh, <clears throat> I think he has a number of showings around uh, Lower Mainland over the next several months. Right. Yeah, I just hope that it gets out to everybody so that sure. our, our city council has access to it. Um, I would like to obviously watch it and learn more and under, understand um, in a more meaningful way and make sure that it can be played to my community. Sure. Yep. And we do a few hostings to make sure that everybody gets the chance to see it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm running for chief of Chawathal, which is yep. within what you've described as this heart of the Fraser. Yep. What did, if I was to succeed... What advice would you have for me on what I can do to make sure that that heart is protected, um, is understood better? What what can an actual person from a First Nations community do if they're a leader to, to play a role? Well, uh, there's a few things. Um, I think one is um, lobby your fellow colleagues at the at the political level within the Stalo community to have those islands that were sold by Kruger pulp and paper. So there was a huge body of islands from essentially from uh, Seabird Island down to uh, the lower end of Chilliwack uh, that were basically cut up and sold to private interests. And so they were really sold very cheaply. I think about $10 million for the whole set of islands, maybe a little bit more. And um, they're undevelopable unless you dike them. Really, you know, uh, we lobbied against two bridges, one at Cary Island, one at Hurling. A big berm went in at Strawberry. Strawberry, the, de- the devastation at Strawberry Island is just make makes should make everybody want to weep because the Strawberry Island is a phenomenal fish rearing habitat on its surface during spring freshet. And the landowner built, I think, I think uh, without authorization, big berm out to the island, one of the, one or more of the channels was cut off. So I think First Nations community, Stala community, should hopefully really lobby governments. We're lobbying Joyce Murray as an example and some of the provincial guys to purchase these islands and set them aside as a reserve. They, they need to be set aside as an ecological reserve. 99% of all salmon in the Fraser watershed go through the heart of the Fraser whether it's upstream as adults or downstream as fry or smolts or whatever. So, or, or spawn right in that area. Okay, it needs to be protected. You know, it's, there's nothing like it on planet Earth. It's just nothing like it. Um, we also have, I'm working with a group that Watershed Watch, a uh, uh, number of different uh, Stalo community people, Staza. Maybe you can help me with, it's the uh, environmental um, group that uh, deals with referrals are, are trying to um, um, come to grips with res- restoring some of these destroyed, like uh, Gill Road or Cary Island, that area that was destroyed by uh, mud boggers and, you know, Mad Max road ragers and stuff like that. <clears throat> so that, that I would say. Uh, riparian area, Seabird Island, uh, lobby your friends at Seabird Island to restore a buffer. So Seabird, big agricultural area, uh, but all the riparian area was 
uh, cut right down to the water's edge. Uh, lobby some of your communities that live within the river. And I know flooding is a really important part of uh, community protection within the Stalo peoples of the heart of the Fraser. Um, but if you can lobby to have some of these edge habit edge habitats are so important yeah. to maintaining ecosystems uh, within Tuathal, you know, by the river. Make sure that there's a good swath uh, vegetation. Along, you know, I know, I know, you know, non-First Nation lands. I see, you know, another patch of vegetation cut down right to the river, like in the uh, Laidlaw area. Like it's just like, for me, it's biologically criminal to see that riparian areas, those bands of vegetation along river edges. It helps with ecosystems. It helps to prevent erosion. It helps uh, a whole pile of things. Okay, so those are the those are a couple of things that really come off. Uh, to the top of my mind, um, I'd I'd uh, encourage the Stalo community to get education as to uh, how marvelous this ecosystem is. Yeah. I think at Peter's Island, there's a bunch of work going on in the in the wetted uh, flood floodplain. Like, you know, tell people don't go in that area. You know, stay away from that area. Uh, restore that area. Uh, educate uh, your youth into what, you know, and, and quite frankly, there's not a lot of people that work on the heart of the Fraser at a scientific level. Yeah. I know that because I'm one of the few people that's actually ever had reports written about it or had students go out and assess or, or you know, gone out there with nets and sampling gear, rod and reel, whatever, uh, trying to figure out minnow traps, trying to figure out what's going on there. So I would... Um, really encourage the uh, First Nations communities between mission and hope to recognize what I think is an extraordinary piece of uh, First Nations uh, ecosystem in all of Canada, you know? And there's there's tons of stuff from, you know, Nova Scotia to Vancouver Island to, you know, up into the, uh, you know, the northern Mackenzie Delta and stuff like that. But because Fraser River used to have such an extraordinary salmon run and the heart of the Fraser, those wetlands and islands and channels between hope and mission are just so, in my view, so critical to really understand and to protect and lobby and develop legislation within your own um, political framework to protect these ecosystems. How do we get educated? Uh, sitting down with you, it's very humbling because it shows me how much I don't know, how much there is to learn about these systems. But how do we give and make sure people have access to the education of sort of what you're describing, um, but even on a deeper level of exactly what fish, where, how long, when to do this? Yeah. How do we get all of those tools? How do I make sure the youth of my community are able to understand these things at a deeper level than even I have? Well, I'm faced with that same issue, and I've worked on the heart of the Fraser for 25 or 30 years, you know, going back to my childhood, really. Um, like, I think the stuff that I've done, and I think I've probably done more than pretty well anybody, sturgeon research, uh, off-channel research, gravel stuff, uh, you know, um, supervised uh, Dr. Laura Rempel, on her assessment of fish utilizing. That's probably, between Mission and Hope's probably the biggest Chinook rearing habitat in all British Columbia. 
Juvenile Chinook love those great big gravel bars, okay? Um, and so, uh, like, I feel like I know so little about it. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that um, First Nations community want to find a way to actually understand it. And maybe First Nations community knows a lot about that part of the river that I don't, you know. Um, traditional ecological knowledge is something that we talk about, I think, at BCIT quite glibly. And I, I probably worked on First Nations issues uh, from a fisheries perspective more than, you know, Nachaco. Um, I worked with the ONA, um, uh, connected with the, um, the Shushwap Nation Tribal Council, uh, the First Nations communities in uh, Katsi, uh dealt with Kwantlen a bit, you know, and uh, connect. Sometimes I'm on court cases against First Nations. So the Chiam gravel removal case, I was actually against First Nations in the court case around 1990, 91. And then, uh, then, you know, the next thing you know, I'm working with Chiam band on something or or at least sitting in meetings with them, you know. So so it's it's a tough thing because there's all these moving targets and it's not... It's not uh, specific to First Nations. It's, you know, it's uh, the community, uh, British Columbia, Canada, and the world in general, is that things, you know, political sort of viewpoints and understandings and education and values of what something is important, what isn't important. Uh, you know, we used to go without any, without any authorization and mine gravel bars. You know, when I was a kid... Um, there was a, an island, a bar, um, out by the Catamol. I think we called it Catamol Bar. Um, the uh, a log sort area, which is long gone. People don't even know about it. It was mined. It was very stable. It would have been very stable based on aerial photographs. Nobody knew, you know. One of the most exceptional fishing, angling spots in uh, the gravel reach of the Fraser River, and it's gone, right? People just mined it. It's... You know, and so the incremental understanding, education, and um, knowledge, I think, has to be pushed hard to the political level. Uh, City of Chilliwack, you know, the um, tribal councils, uh, you know, that we need to understand these areas at a scientific level or a traditional ecological level knowledge level more than we have because if we don't we will have the strawberry islands we're a whole whole macro habitat you know i would hate to think how many fish are going to be obliterated production wise if that island gets turned into a cranberry field it's just it's just mind-boggling it's it's a it's a macro habitat that far and away so the um uh the uh, British Columbia and, and federal governments have put large money, PSSI, Pacific Salmon uh, Sustainability Initiative or something like that, put lots of money into, or the lot, and it's called something a little bit different, uh, BC Shrift or something like that, uh, prior to that. More habitat lost in Strawberry Island than has been restored, you know, by this funding, this partial billion dollar, hundreds of million dollar funding entity and all the work that's been done around British Columbia, like, mind-boggling, okay? And so, um, because Stalo and the communities um, 
Chehalis, and um, up, you know, the lower part around Hope, are basically, I'll call them the historical stewards of the landscape. Um, it seems to me that um, they have special rights and coming with that special obligations to their subsequent generations. And I'm not in the community. I'm speaking from outside of the community. I have no right to tell uh, a community how they should deal with it. But I'm hopeful that the um, First Nations communities within the eastern Fraser Valley would recognize what an extraordinary treasure, what an extraordinary um, special thing this chunk of river between Hope and Mission represents going back 10,000 years since the last Ice Age. And we talk about time immemorial. <laughs> For me as a biologist, uh, 10,000 years isn't very long. Okay, so 10,000 years is is uh, only kind of a, a sort of a, and I talk about the epochs and the, uh, uh, you know, the various ages and stuff to my students in class, evolutionary. But having said that, um, I think uh, First Nations communities have a special right and a special responsibility to something that's so extraordinary, so uh, unique, and so vibrant that I would hope that, you know, people could get together and, and somehow come up with an arrangement to protect this area. I agree. I That is one of the reasons I wanted to sit down with you is because yeah. uh, your passion, your interest, Dean's interest in the area in which my community is from yeah. um, puts it on a special radar for me. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's only through conversations like this we start to understand the problem um, and start to look at steps on how we can start to improve things. Uh, do you have any advice for people on what organizations they should be a part of? Uh, there's so many different ones. There's the Wild Salmon Defenders Alliance. Yeah. There's just so many different types. Do you have any advice on, on how people can start to learn um, and get involved in, in positive projects to try and support these ecosystems? I would almost say not. Okay. And the reason for that is I've, I've almost always tried to stay non-aligned. Okay. If, a, if, a, if say, the BC Wildlife Federation comes to me and says, can you help us on this? You know, the Northern Gateway Pipeline, I, you know, help them on it. Uh, can you give us a pr presentation on sturgeon? I'll do that. Um, if, um, you know, Katesy come by and say, can you help us? I, I, you know, I'm happy to do that. Uh, Watershed Watch, you know, they've asked me to help them. I'll, I'll do that. Um, um, the Alouette River Management Society works in Katesy territory and had been very tied to Katesy uh, and flow issues on the Alouette River. And I, you know, help help them. Uh, occasionally it's, you know, on a contractual basis, mostly, mostly pro bono, mostly uh, volunteer. Uh, I, I think you have to find what you're most comfortable in. And uh, the reason I say that is BC Wildlife Federation, as an example, has some extraordinary people that work, do fabulous things. On the other hand, they sometimes have been considered to be more of a good old boys hunting and fishing group. And look at me, I'm a... You know, uh, uh, I'll call myself a late middle-aged uh, hunter, hunter and fisherman. You know, and I, I'm at that at some level, I'm part of that. Okay, there's folks, watershed watch, younger, very vibrant, 
uh, folks that are sort of out of my sort of age bracket, more into the folks that I will be edu- educating. And But I'm happy to help them as well. And First Nations community, um, you know, when I was asked, and, and this was, you know, I was act, acting as an expert witness, so I was hired by uh, the Stellatin First Nations up in Nachaco on Sturgeon Flows. I was happy to do that. Okay, so so I, I guess I'm I'm and and so something like the um, Salmon River Enhancement Society. I did a lot of work on the Trans Mountain impacts associated with stream crossings. And uh, when you figure out all the hours of work that you do, you know I got paid a little bit of, of money for the contract out of out of through the intervener status of that. But still delighted to work with. Um, you know the folks that were were part of that. Uh, um, you know the the executive um, uh, Larry and uh, there's Doug and Annabelle and folks like that. Just passionate in their own right. So I think you kind of have to find your own comfort zone with with regards to uh, communities, sort of ecosystem groups or fisheries groups or environmental groups. Don't you think we're, like, you've kind of described, we're at a stage where we don't have a lot of time left for people to uh, choose whatever floats their boat. It seems like we're in, you're saying fish farms are really dangerous. If we keep having this decline in salmon, we just won't have any left. And then we might as well just develop the Fraser to have houses and, and like, and just forget about the fish in there if we continue down this path. So don't you think maybe having specific ones that are going to fight fish farms or something is, is a worthwhile investment? Well, you know, I think groups like rain, uh, Rain Coast. Rain Coast. Okay. Yeah. I think groups like Watershed Watch. Oh. I think there's uh, elements of, you know, BC Wildlife Federation is mostly hunting and fishing, but there's elements of it that are really strong uh, environmental stress. You know, Salmon River Enhancement Society, really strong. And, and they go outside of their their sort of watershed geographic boundaries. Um, the uh, um, local group in... Um, uh, in Maple Ridge, the the Allert River Management Society, you know, they, these are good groups, or they they have over time. David Suzuki Foundation, you know, I've worked um, both uh, little contracts and pro bono for uh, David Suzuki Foundation. Our little gravel stewardship group, which is just you know some quirky little good old boys in Chilliwack that uh, hated to see uh, an ecosystem that they grew up in uh, fall apart so uh, those are names that I you know I can I can put on the table sure. that I've had personal uh, familiarity with and you know I'll, tonight I'll be laying in bed and I go oh, I should have mentioned I should have mentioned you know the the Boundary Bay uh, Bird Association or the Fraser Valley Natural you know the Fraser Valley uh, Natural uh, Dennis Knopf is doing great work so yeah. you know there, there there'll be tons of groups that'll come flashing in my mind and say well okay um, but I think I think uh, you kind of have to do a little bit of research on your own I like the people in Watershed Watch you know yeah. Lena Aziz just wonderful person and she's just so passionate she's you know, uh, Indo-Canadian from Dubai, you know, and people say, oh, you know, she was in the heart of the Fraser. Why is she working <laughs> with First Nations communities here? So, uh, you know, uh, um, continental India, um, uh, ethnic, working with local 
First Nations ethnic and you know not European. You know, it's this mixture that is becoming so. It's kind of like a washing machine, and everybody is tumbling around and and trying to find. I think you. you I think you, your your bearings. You have to have a moral bearing, and by moral, I don't. I'm not talking about religious or anything, but your sort of environmental ethos. And then you're going to find your little group that you're comfortable with. I kind of mm. think yeah. that is brilliant, Marvin. It has been such a pleasure. I've learned so much about uh, how fish migrate, about the importance of ethics in this regard, uh, the challenges that government present us, and the importance of understanding the issues at a deeper level so we don't get kind of convinced that everything is going to be okay and, and don't worry about anything because uh, we've got economic growth. I think. A lot of the issues you face within your field, others have faced. And so I th I'm glad to be able to hear from voices like yours, like Lee Harding, to see um, a pattern, to understand how the system sort of works. And hopefully we can start to take steps to address it so that we do have the heart of the Fraser beating in a healthy way in the future. And so it seems like that's your passion. And I'm so grateful to have been able to hear that and experience that today. Sure. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed the chat, and uh, I'm sure we will connect in the future. Absolutely. I really hope so, because uh, you're a wealth of knowledge, and I think it's important that we hear from people like yourself. Okay. Pleasure to do it.